is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. We're seeing the devastating impact of this invisible killer. There will come a moment when no health service in the world could possibly cope because there won't be enough ventilators, enough intensive care beds, enough doctors and nurses. That is the moment of real danger. The new variant is out of control and we need to bring it under control and this news about the new variant has been a uh, an incredibly difficult end to, frankly, an awful year. And it's important for everybody to act, essentially act like they might have the virus. And that's the way that we can control it together. The way ahead is hard. And it is still true that many lives will sadly be lost. Our advisory group on new and emerging respiratory virus threats, NERVTAG, has spent the last few days analyzing this new variant. It may be up to 70% more transmissible than the old variant, the original version of the disease. You, you might be infectious, and that's the way that we have to behave at this moment. Assume you might be infectious, assume you might be infectious, and that's the way that we have to behave at this moment. Today, the United Kingdom's chief medical officers have advised that the country should move to alert level five, meaning that uh, if action is not taken, NHS capacity may be overwhelmed within 21 days. And it's going to spread further. And I, I must level with you, level with the, the British public, um, more families, uh, many more families, are going to lose loved ones before their time. Your colleague on SAGE, John Edmonds, has just sent me a statement saying that as far as he's concerned, this is the worst moment of the epidemic because of the extraordinary inf infectivity of this new strain. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, this is a horrible moment for sure. I to say, I'm really sorry to hear about your two relatives who died from this virus. I mean, it is a very dangerous virus uh, for many people. We're looking to move to a different regime, so as we come to the fourth step, we will change the basic tools that we have used to control human behaviour.
burst off after reading that little line. I will be arrested for not taking a fucking vaccine. This is not a fucking joke anymore. This is fucking dead serious. I am fucking dead serious. These people don't know who the fuck they're actually playing with. They are, you know, good they might come and fucking intimidate me and whatnot. But fuck, they do not understand what the fuck just one person like myself is capable of. They do not fucking understand. No fucking vaccine or MRA will ever flow through my fucking blood blood. Never! I will fucking die fucking fighting for my forefathers and my fucking lineage. Fuck these motherfuckers. everyone and uh interesting stream today we're going to have uh, powerful george webb and uh, a whole a whole slew of experts that you know and uh well i'm not going to be doing housekeeping and such so uh, support the stream you know where the links are down below and uh let's uh let's get on with the bring everyone in do this hope the soundboard is clean yeah Hello, John. Um, not not sure who you are, but uh, welcome, welcome to the Jihad Science Show. I was hey, expecting George Webb. Oh, okay. Um, Ryan hates giving. But is that welcome to the Jihad Science Show? I can hear someone. Oh, expecting hey, George Webb. Florida. Oh, okay. We can hear someone's um, speakers. Uh, ah. um, is, is is that a sign show? Uh, I can hear someone. We can hear um, some. We've got, we've got sound reverberating around. Hold on, that might be mine. Good to see you, Charles. Um, I, thought, we I thought we were going to get George uh, Webb, but... Um, 
Uh, are you an acquaintance of George John? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You may tag them. Uh, well, I'm waiting for him to join the stream as well as Karma Doc. So, um, we'll I guess we'll wait. So, <laughs> so I enjoyed um, the intro there. Yeah, you, you Roger it. Waters fan, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, I guess what I thought we were going to be talking about today was um, Healer's House. Um, I've been trying to keep up with what George has been um, investigating and um, hoping that we, we could sort of drill down into the bottom of that and um, see well, see where the issues are, etc., and um, how that stacks up against the uh, the the science of today that we um, we're dealing with. But uh, okay, I see Karma Doc. That. Hey, Karma, how are you? Can you hear us? I can. Okay, I think your speakers might be a little can you hear us? loud. Yeah. Do, you, do you have a headset? Yes, I'll be back. Yeah. Um, so, just give some background as to what we were talking or. or Think we're going to be talking about so um there's a i was asked to watch um bbc old bbc documentary i remember it um when i from when i was a lad i still hear someone's uh speakers rattling everyone needs to get headsets you need you need earphones in otherwise we're just going to keep getting bleed through um and this was about the contamination with um, Henrietta Lacks cells from uh, the well, the time from when they found that they could culture them, and Henrietta or the, or the Healer cells, as they're known, have become a sort of um, mainstay. Oh, Mark is joining us. Awesome, um, and. Uh, Mark, how are you, sir? Connecting. Can you hear us? Are you talking to me? Yes, I am. How are you, sir? Long time no oh, see. Good. I apologize. I'm just uh, my t-shirt and yeah. I brought some leftover nachos. I guess uh, you enjoy <laughs> them. And um, so I was just I was just giving some background. Um, I was expecting. Is George joining us or? Um, there. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. And... Super. Yeah, George said he was going to come. Um, let me message him again. See what's up. So I was giving some background about uh, the healer cells. Um, well, I don't, I'm not. I'm not sure whether to call it a sort of fiasco um, because you know. That period of bio 
technology was a very um uh, there were still a lot of unknowns um uh, with with respect with respect to um what they were doing how they were how to, how to even get cultures to grow and the you know my experience right now or 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 my experience during my research career was is that tissue banks for these cell lines are very very strictly controlled right now so there's um especially for seed stocks now you might get a you might be able to buy cell line that gets transported to you and in the in the scheme of things um <clears throat> these experiments done on them are what are called um in vitro experiments right so you you add stuff to your cells and you'll see if you get a reaction etc and um from the healer cell line which was the mainstay we've reached a point where they now have cell culture lines that are not tumor cell lines that are constantly the immortalized cell lines that they're literally um they're and a big one being sort of um lung lung epithelial cell lines let's see the what the WI 37 or 38, it's like from Wistar Institute. 38. Uh, I'm, yeah. Cool. I'm familiar with the things here, so he would know. That. Hi, Nick. Hey, Karma, how are you? I am here. I am too. <laughs> so we just kick off with out. George, I'll keep an eye out for him to see if he wondering what the heck. pops it in, but um where where do you guys want to start uh, kevin can we start with a little bit of uh basics for those that aren't biology or virology um adept let's talk about what it means to immortalize a cell line would uh, one of the phds like to handle that um if john is a expert in um cell tissue culture um i'm happy let him go um i like i say i have um i was uh above that uh tissue culture stuff that was for that was just the very basic stuff didn't involve a monkey uh i weren't interested and i'm afraid nick you're gonna have to have the chat on your face uh sorry um can you guys hear me i'm getting error on my yes we can. We, we can hear hey, you. Bye, bye, bye. Yeah, we can hear you all right, let me test in my headset. Zoom error. So, well, just immortalized cell lines generally tend to come from tumors, right? And the and that's how they sort of began to build the technology for um, cell lines in general. And like I say, it's within the last decade or so that they've they've really began to get sophisticated with them and the decade is being um bit, bit too um tight on the timeline but the um 
you know, what what were the experiments? What experiments could you do with cell lines themselves? And like I say, the the in my field, it it was the the basics for like toxicity testing. You would you would find a new compound, and you would want to check to see if you could, um, you know, what what the LD50 on your cell line would be. And in my field, it was more sort of um, glioblastoma cell lines because of like neural tissue, et cetera. And um, also for just testing, you know, any any compounds that you thought might be of use, right? And from there, you would then move to mouse rodent. If you got something promising there, you then went to uh, you. You then tried to step it up to primate, and from primate you went into human. That was supposed to be the basic order of how you would run um, these experiments, and um, that's become less so as monkeys have sort of dropped from favour because universities have not so keen to support colonies anymore um and the yeah and i I think we're seeing the errors of that at the moment where suddenly there's a demand for monkeys because of sars itself um they uh, the prices have shot through the roof back to trying to get hold of primates and they just don't have the uh, ability to be able to um provide labs with access to these monkeys so um the so you know from my from my perspective there was um it's it's really the i'm not saying it doesn't have a degree of you need to know what you're doing to handle them because you can lose cell lines very very quickly because of contamination Mold is a is, is a massive one, and this is why the getting into like the tissue bank is a drawn out process, and you, you've got to be super sterile, etc., and um, all, all all these things. So there's there's a degree of technical competency just in maintaining them, etc. But the um, th- they're there for very low level testing, I would say. It's your first test if you find something of interest. And from there, and I mean, I know from the, like I said, the documentary you watched yesterday where there was healer cells popping up left, right, and center as um, people, as as these things were getting contaminated and uh, or cell lines were getting contaminated. And that shows you how sensitive those cultures can be and why they're so strict in who gets access to those rooms and who does what, etc. So um, I think that sort of covers the um, the basics to this. John, is your audio five by five? One's gone. Yeah, yeah, I can't hear him anymore. Yeah, we don't we don't hear you, John. John, we see that you're talking. We're not hearing you. 
Um, so, uh, does anyone else want to chip in uh, whilst we're still? Do you want to explain the the HeLa cells in particular and where they originated? Or I guess Mark, you're pretty versed in this. Well, I can ex describe the you know the mainstream narrative. Uh, the HeLa cells were collected from the uh, reproductive area. I think it was described as cervical, which is odd because I don't think cervical cancer is that invasive. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's not known to be lethal. It used uh, to be, but th these were uterine cells anyway. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And this was uh, from a, uh, a woman in Baltimore in, uh, I think it was March of 1951. Uh, she had at Johns Hopkins Hospital, Johns Hopkins University a Research Center, um, which was the main hospital in Baltimore at that time. Uh, much has uh, been noted that she was an African American woman, black woman, um, uh, and of course that holds certain weight with respect to the uh, um, making it more wrong. I don't know. Um, uh, but it is an, it, it's a continuously referenced part of the story. It might be referenced excessively because of the implications that it has on having found signs of these cell lines in many different places. And what I am not able to figure out, and you can expand upon this, uh, Nick, if you can, is... Uh, when they were finding signs of HeLa cells in a whole bunch of different cell lines throughout the late 1950s and early 1960s, uh, I got the impression, at least from the documentary, that they were using uh, ex uh, proteins that they were finding or enzymes, which I think have a higher probability of being in Black Americans than they would in non-Black Americans, meaning... Uh, that's a really poor way to say it was definitely Henrietta Lacks. I mean, 12% of the U.S. population is black. So um, that just narrows it down to one. Thing. But anyways, uh, it's been uh, used as a, uh, uh, a marker for, for that. And that might be one of the reasons why it's, it's always referenced. I don't know. But anyways, the, she had just given birth to her fourth or fifth child, I think fourth, December of 1950. So, and from what I can tell, what I've read, there was nothing noted at that time uh, of uh, problematic. Uh, so all the signs are there that she was, you know, single partner, not promiscuous. The cancer rates in those areas tend to be lower if you have more children. I mean, everything lines up to suggest that why did she suddenly have one tumor that according to the uh, the autopsy was one of the, by the time she died a few months after that, even was like, it covered like half of her insides. It was just kind of like, that's again, that's the narrative. It's odd. It's, it's, it doesn't really add up. Well, it may, it may not have started in the, in the uterus. That might've been where they found it, but it might've already been metastasizing. And that just happened to be where they, where they discovered it because of the spotting that occurred, which is why she went to the doctor in the first place. 
she went happen. to the doctor as the result of a personal examination. That's mm-hmm. why she, that's why she went in. So right. like three months, three or three and a half months after she gave birth to that lot, that other child, there's no family history of this type of cancer or similar cancers based upon what was discussed anyways. And uh, the, the doctor who collected the sample on the day she died, actually did a television show about this amazing thing that he found, which is, I don't know. Uh, that's, that just seems to be crossing so many taboo lines. Uh, regardless, uh, he was very quick to, to highlight it while she was still in the morgue. Uh, and, uh, from there, that was the, the basis of this, these cells, which they then studied and they noted that it just kept growing. It would grow anywhere. It would grow on almost anything. It was super infectious. They would find it places where they shouldn't have, uh, they did not disclose that the cell collection was taken. They put it under a different name. Eventually they decided to call it Henry Gila or as Henrietta Lacks. And uh, I think it was a long time before they, they even told the family like 10, 15 years or more, maybe, uh, which is again, wrong. Uh, and being um, immortal, uh, being able to uh, divide over and over and over again, it's great for controlled experiments because if you want to test something, well, it's going to probably be really close to the cells you tested on last year or five years ago. You can make a whole lot of it. Uh, it gives you a lot of options, aside from the fact that it's a cancerous cell. Um, so that's not good. And having been collected in 1951, they were used as part of uh, multiple medical experiments. Sometimes people were told what was being involved, such as uh, uh, testing on prisoners in Ohio in 1956 or seven. Chester Southam was involved in that. Uh, but more disturbing is they were used with polio vaccine production. And I think that's that's the key that's really making me wonder how much of the, the, the Henrietta Lacks narrative is in and of itself true. Because as soon as they find these cells, there's a polio outbreak uh, where, guess what? They need a massive amount of vaccine production. Well, they just had a huge problem in World War II with yellow fever vaccines. They couldn't make enough because they couldn't find enough cells, non-human, to, uh, to manufacture the yellow fever vaccine. Well, Here's a problem. If you couldn't find enough non-human cells and they were down to using chickens, how are you? And they only had to vaccinate the U.S. military. Now, how are you going to vaccinate the entire U.S. population if you have to use human cells? And and at, at that moment, boom, like magic at Johns Hopkins, a doctor finds a cell that divides forever. It's just one of those how freaking convenient stories. Um, now maybe I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm looking at it as like, oh boy, I, I, I don't know about this. Um, either way, uh, either it's, there's more to it than what they're saying, or, uh, the story is true, which means a, a cancer cell was used 
for uh, virus vaccine manufacturing, if you will, for the polio vaccine that was injected indiscriminately into, God, how 50 million Americans? And that doesn't sound like a very good deal either. I don't care how many how many times you wash it out uh, or whatever it is they say they do. Uh, it just it doesn't really do a whole lot to inspire confidence. Um, and the, re- the rest of the documentary goes on to say that um, there were many new cell lines which discovered that they thought were very similar to HeLa cells. They realized that, oh, my goodness, it, uh, they're seeing this same enzyme. Signs that it must be from a black person. Oh, it must be Henrietta Lacks. Well, maybe. I don't know. Uh, so it's a great documentary to get a lot of conversation started. Um, I think that there's a whole lot more to learn. Uh, and for the record, I I don't really know. I never really said that there's a Gila role or is not a Gila role with the current vaccine production. I don't. I don't, I really, I don't know. I have no expert opinion on it at all. Uh, I know George has talked a lot about it and he may be right. I, I just, I just don't, I just don't have an opinion on it right now. Uh, but uh, surely looking into it has made me revisit a lot of things, especially the importance of getting cells to grow that to, to, for vaccine manufacturing. Which, by the way, is the last thing I'll say. Uh, uh, I think one of a multitude of motives to get away from the old vaccine model, the egg model, the whatever, is it's just getting enough cells. Um, and one of the values of the new era of vaccines is uh, um, uh, not perhaps not having as many uh, that's the traditional things required to manufacture these uh, you know these these lipid nanoparticles mRNA etc. Now we can start manufacturing it in a completely different way. You know, get away from the the monkeys, the chickens, the spiders, the moths, the fetuses, the, the you know whatever else goes into the blender. I have no idea. Well, they um, haven't they haven't moved away from moths. Uh, the uh, what's the one from Australia? And I think Novavax might Novavax, have. Novavax, yeah. That's, Maybe uh, a few others. Yeah. No, Novavax did. Uh, I, I think it was the one that, um, was it the one that Petrovsky did? Yes. Yeah. 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 I can't yeah, remember the name yeah. of it offhand. But, um, but you know, I'm. That, that's a, a, a yield. That's a, hopefully that's a good start. So I, I'm I, surprised I, you didn't bring up Dr. Alice Moore, though. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's she's a she's a key figure to, to links a lot of history together. That's um, I, I've been tasked, I guess, with discovering her. Oh well, uh, but she she helps collect a lot of metadata. But it's really not her story, right? Um, I mean, she it, but she's helped bring a lot of tie a lot of things together. Uh, but it's really not you know Alice Moore's world. Um, but it's definitely been a really helpful from a research perspective. So I'll, I'll add this caveat again that um, in biology, um, it's very, very difficult to find, or, or, or you have to have a model that can be easily replicated across labs, right? And so 
you know, a rhesus macaque. Well, you know, they all look the same, right? So we'll we'll use we'll use those. And um, again, the cell, the cell culture technology is is something that's um, you know even. I don't know. To, today, maybe people think the 1950s is a long time ago. I I don't. But um, back then, they it were. It felt longer ago when we were kids. Like right. we're about the same age, Kevin. When we were kids, 1950s felt 300 years ago. Well, now <laughs> we're we're 50. We're, we're, we're mid 50s, and it feels like like wow. You know, uh, I actually have books from back then. You know, it doesn't feel that old anymore, which is totally bizarre, but. Yeah. And just you have to um, really understand how imp how important this piece of trying to do replicative science is. So as soon as as soon as they found something that could um, that had these properties that HeLa cells have, right? That they've whatever the cancer was that she had, and uh, like I said, I'm no expert on um cancer itself but from the sounds of it she was um riddled from top to bottom with um with cancer of whatever type um but uh the the, the power that that suddenly imbued on microbiologists or biologists in general that they had something that they were able to test from one lab to another was a, a, a back then would have been a massive jump forward, right? Because uh, uh, up to that point, you're you're, you're constrained. It to, was. It was a big jump. Yeah, yeah. And prior to <clears throat> that, you would have been well. You, you would have had agreed upon a test platform like a rodent, like a mm -hmm. whatever animal system that you were going to try and mm -hmm. um, work with. And they they still have some degree of variation. Now, again, that's changed in recent years as they can sort of, um, well, they can knock in and knock out genes such, such that they can get a degree of precision on their animal models again wasn't there um in the preceding decades and you know the um the the a lot of the driving force for this was just um again pharmaceutical companies right that they wanted to have um a cohesive data set again as different laboratories would have been searching for molecules of interest and then okay we're seeing this does someone else see the same thing and then and then you can start building in um replication now i can tell you from sort of personal experience not is not working with healer cells but um you know when i sort of started my career stem cells were all the rage stem cells were going to fix everything and um I spent a number of years working on stem cells to um 
for nothing basically nothing nothing came of it because every time we tried to put stem cells into test platform the, the they would just get destroyed by the immune system of the animal and the only way that we could get any type of traction would be to fry the immune system of the animals that we would be testing in and so that would require sort of multiple dosing of high levels of cyclosporin and okay when and so I, I, as a I don't want to bore you with the, <laughs> the details of the story but the the I took this project over from a, a Chinese um, postdoc who had been in the lab and I, I said, and they weren't getting any success. I said, so I said, okay, I'll try, I'll try and do it. And quickly realized through looking through the notes that he wasn't coming in on the weekend to give cyclosporin, right? And so I then started to do that. And then suddenly we could, we could get the, uh, the stem cells to last a bit longer, but they didn't, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, which were turn into um, dopaminergic cells. Instead, they just turned into tumors. And this is the, um, this is why this, this staging from the cell culture experiments, so the in vitro experiments, to then going to rodents, to then, to, you're supposed to go monkey, and then, human right and you can't um so you know a good a good example being that in that documentary um the way of the flesh was it called something like that yeah I, I uh, the way of all flesh way uh, of all yeah flesh, yeah um um sounds more like a porno movie to me but that's that's a just horrible me. name <laughs> <laughs> but um the, the um, you saw that they were doing prisoner experiments in there. And again, oh, yeah. right. Um, in most cases, <clears throat> right. They got very, very little traction from taking healer cells and putting them into, a, say a complex organism because the immune system is just going to come in and, and recognize them as non-self and wipe them out. And, you know, it's a sort of, it's a corny thing to say, but you're making cancer cells all the time, right? And it's the fact that you have a functioning immune system that goes around and says, okay, you're, you're, um, you're not behaving correctly and we'll, um, it's time for you to um, be taken out and the immune system will come in and gobble those cells up and um, we carry on our merry way. And the the issue, and th this just comes down to this contamination issue that's so critical in cell culture technology that you can you can get contaminated by literally anything and everything because in a cell culture you don't have an immune system. Even healer cells, if you don't look after them correctly, will die on you if the conditions are not right okay so um 
you know, the now I, I don't know all the the details of the prisoners that <clears throat> they got that got exposed to um those well, it looked like subcutaneous um injections to me. And Well they were very naughty, clearly. Uh the prisoners? <laughs> <laughs> I, I presume so. Would you, the... would you like that piece before my mic was broken? It was Zoom's fault. Okay. There's a bug, obviously, Zoom bugs. I can give you the history. Mark alluded to it. Why we moved to Gila, why all that happened. Okay. So I will shed some light on it for you. Um, in the beginning of all of this cancer research, the big problem was material. In a eukaryotic cell that's human, you only have two pairs of 23 chromosomes, which is 46. Okay, so where we started was in the corner of the lab, there was a room where we grew ciliates. Okay, so Tom checked. 1989 Nobel Laureate over in Boulder, Colorado. I was in Lincoln, Nebraska. My PI, Carolyn Price, did her work, postdoc Tom Check's lab. Elizabeth Blackburn, her lab, UC San Francisco, worked on tetrahymena. And Carol Greider, also 2009 Nobel Laureate, worked on Stalinikia. Tom's lab worked on Oxytrica, all ciliates. So we had to grow these things, and it's exactly what you said. So growing a ciliate line and keeping a ciliate line to do all your experiments is an art, to put it politely. So the reason that we grew those cells was, first off, they had two nuclei, a micronuclei and a macronuclei. The reason that we grew them was because they had millions of chromosomes and each chromosome was one gene. So we could work out all of those methods and biochemistry and all the DNA assays and recombinant assays so that we, when we were ready and we had the um, resolution of the assay, which is detection method. So detection method, obviously I worked with a lot of radioactivity, right? We used radioactivity back then, and then we moved to fluorescent methods and phosphorescent methods. Uh, I was there at the beginning of that. So we cultured those things so that we could then do a southern blot with a probe that came from Czech's lab. And then I had probe from Grider's lab in Stylonychia when I was chasing, I was after a telomere binding protein at the end of the chromosome, so I was chasing it, but it was one kilobase in size. So you need material, you need enough material so that when you do the assay, you can overcome things like uh, degradation and clean methods. So you know this, I my experience when, when you first go into a lab from coursework, or you're making that transition from coursework to day-to-day -day in the lab, you've got to learn those methods. It's like an auto mechanic, you know, your skill set. So for me, as I witnessed with many other people, there was a lot of failure. I was pissed off. I couldn't see, you know, I run a gel, I transfer the gel to nitrocellulose and I do a Southern blot 
and I'm trying to get signal on one kilobase gene, which is extremely hard. So in our lab, we had Euplodes crassus. There was a methodology that we got from Czech's lab to purify those chromosomes with a uh, cesium chloride spin down on a ultra centrifuge. Okay. Then we had the macronuclear DNA. Then it was take the probe from the plasmid line that we were given in Oxytrica from Czech's lab, cut it out in restriction enzymes and radio label it with P32, then Southern blot. And then the next piece was the RFLP enzyme Southern blot, where I, I'm looking to compare a digestion map of that gene with the digestion map in my in my macronuclear and DNA, okay, to show that these genes have the same RFLP fingerprint. And then the next piece after that is um, blunt end ligation in a C library in bacteria, where you clone everything that's one kilobase in size, then you grow it on plates and agar plates, then you do a you do a north you you put the nitrocellulose on that plate you mark it so you have the position right you take that out do a southern blot on it then once you light up that bacterial colony you take that clone off the plate and you grow the line and then you do some more validation of it so you know how the line of that gene once you have the line of that gene and it's just that gene you go sequence it so those methods in my case, I was after a one kilobase gene. It's not easy to get a one kilobase gene. They kicked out five South Koreans before me. I, nobody told me. They never warn you when you come in a lab, by the way. Oh, by the way, did you know that five South Koreans got kicked out on your project? Ha, ha, ha. No, they don't tell you any of that stuff. Um, so the I'm early culturing. Sitting and listening to the, the steps there and... Uh... For people who haven't worked in a lab, that must just sound like fairy tale of witches, right? Add a eye of me, <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> you'd be you'd be surprised at just how um, non-standardized, particularly even in my lifetime, non-standardized the methods were. To, to try to sort of crack open and, and get at these, um, well, the intracellular mechanics. And, you know, I think it's changing now with um, modern proteomics and um, the, um, just the, well, just the last 10, 15 years, um, molecular biology is just sort of, it's taking a, quantum leap in terms of its ability to um to reproducibly pull out this data such that again the uh, labs across the world are, are able to um compare notes and so you know that when you read through the methods you'll see oh we used um whatever fishers this and they'll give a, a a product line but behind that product line is literally decades of what 
John was just describing of, oh, God, you know, <laughs> we try doing this and we'll try mixing this. And then eventually they'll, they'll settle in on something that um, can be handed over to industry. And then um, the industry kind of guarantees the quality of the, of, of the product line such that, again, that the results are, are reproducible. Now, I, I, I don't think you're going to find in a, a modern-day lab the issue that you found with um, HeLa cells contaminating everything that they were um, working with. 50, more now. I keep thinking, I'm stuck in the year 2000, basically. But This is uh, 19, late 1950s and 1960s. And again, that's that's the narrative. And, but there was a bridge there. That There was a bridge. So I told you the ciliates were there. Why we were working on it was a material. So towards the end of my tour there, my colleague from Madras, India, Ranganathan Mankatesan, his project like that was to, yeah. His project was to take the bacterial protocol from the vendor and do the cloning in bacteria to get the uh, DNA to shove into lambda, which is a is somewhat of a strange protocol. It's based on probabilities that you shove the DNA into Lambda. Then you infect the HeLa cell. So we had HeLa culture, but the move went after all that time of doing, I just described to you simple assays, but all of the assays, once they were worked out on the ciliates, right? Where Elizabeth and, you know, Checks lab, all these people. Once they worked out the processes, then it was refined them for detection. In the middle of this, what was happening is you have Moore's law. So um, I put a lot of NIH. Yeah, you're talking about the computing law here. Yes. Yeah. I built a core facility for NIH at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, and part of that involved instrumentation that improved that resolution of like a densitometer for uh, looking at what the density of your radioactivity is in terms of your southern blot, your protein and mobility shift, or your RNA transcription level from your northern blots. So people were what a lot of ha a lot of things that happened with the ciliates was they look at the life cycle of the ciliate and they look at the tra transcription levels and all these cycles and then those same ciliates where we isolated the protein de novo that went to university of nebraska omaha medical center where they popped it in the mice and we got our monoclonal antibodies to do our western blot work so the problem in the middle of these things that we had before we could go to Gila, the big problem was the ability to characterize and work with these things. The biggest problem was solubilizing the telomere binding proteins. So Chex's lab had easily solubilized the alpha and alpha subunit 
and was doing lots of protein assays and moving forward with the Moore's Law technology that was coming in instruments, because your eyes are the instruments and the computer technology AI, which is where what we're seeing now is going to have a major impact on all of this in terms of what my data is, what it means, the resolution of it, and all of those things. So I was in the beginning of that with all the computer technology. Um, that that's well, that, part that's, of look, the thing. You can go. You don't have to go back very far. Where right. um, you, yeah, you might have had some sort of acquisition system, but I can I can remember um, in, in my field, people would still be doing um, readouts with paper, right? You would you would have a <laughs> like a, you see those old movies with like the pen, uh, the stylus sort of scratching on on paper for your um, readouts and stuff, and people people would basically Xerox the copies of of those paper readouts and it's like i say the acceleration over the last 20 years is um it's not it's night and day and uh, we're definitely on the threshold of um being able to leverage biology at a at, at a very very fundamental level and this you know this sort of brings us to this issue of um what what comes next with respect to um syn synthetic biology and it's not like a new um issue right when recombinant biology first sort of emerged there was a lot of discussion and it was still sort of you know when i was at university the human genome project hadn't really Got, there was talk of it, right? We need to do the human genome project. We need to sort of do the the mapping of um, chromosomes, etc. And you know, the I can remember <laughs> there would be old professors in there saying, "Oh yes, you know, take us a uh, hundred years to um, map map chromosomes, etc." Um, but that's changed in in my lifetime, and we're and they knew back then the implications of what it would mean if you can start combining peptides or epitopes from one organism into another. And, you know, this is maybe something that Nick can weigh in on, just that the um, recombination was um, a very hit, and miss type affair especially you want to go back to the um 50s and 60s what have you where um they would blast stuff with radiation and or, or and they would try they would try anything and everything and if you got something then you would you, you would be um you know you'd be written into the history books basically and now it's it's routine for them to be able to um take genes um you know crispr cas9 for example right they can take them and they can start putting them in and crispr cas9 is has now just been superseded again by another 
technology that is um, even more easy to use. I'll have to um, find the reference for what they called it, but I was, you know, I was looking at it and the, uh, well, there's a, there, there, there are very few guardrails right now. And this, I would say, we have to be very careful about, you know, again, this biowarfare medical countermeasures industry because they will take that and run with it and continue continue to make ever more eye of new tale of spider type concoctions and um, come up with uh, potential solutions that, as we've seen, an unsuspecting public will get... Um, forced down their well forced down their throats not forced into their arms basically um nick i don't know if you want to sort of try and maybe cover the the history a little better than i did with respect to the um the combination absolutely um uh everybody thanks for joining us tonight we're uh i are we still circling the airport waiting for george to land or is that uh, probably going to reschedule uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, okay. So I'm presuming Armadoc's speaking with him right now. So uh, okay. I could, let's let's just dive in, and um, I'm hoping sure. Mark can maybe um, relay what George is thinking about the HeLa cells because I haven't um, kept up. Well, I'm I'm missing what he's trying to imply by the um, the HeLa cell issue with respect to. Um, the current vaccines and the uh, medical countermeasures say not sure the, sure not the well no i know what i know what he's going after i mean i gave you the story about what happened before gila so i was leaving the picture as gila came in the whole idea to work on the human platform is to have exactly what you said something that you can put in culture that's not going to be contaminated that can give you solid results so that transition from ciliates and some yeast into gila was the jump that was facilitated by moore's law and the technology okay that allowed you to then work with lower concentrations and different methods so when i was in the lab illumina and Illuminex and the chip to do sequencing was just the first paper. They just had the first paper. We were doing S35 Sanger sequencing and Lycor was doing the infrared base sequencing with the gels that just keep running. And I met all those guys from the human genome project, by the way, they came and gave lectures. So in that program that I was in every Friday, we had your guests that were the guys like Craig Venter, the guy that invented the machine that Venter used, came and gave a lecture. And these are lectures where the technical level is such that the aptitude and staying awake, you need to be there. Otherwise, put toothpicks <laughs> between your eyelids because it will go there and all the different subjects. So, um, when you go to colloquium, which is what Lincoln had, it was a program every Friday as a freshman, sophomore, you had to show up with a ticket and 
you had to give that ticket and it collected it. And if you didn't show up to those things, you didn't pass and you had to go more years. Those lectures were from people from everything from IBM to Shell to all your companies and all the cutting edge stuff. Even the guys that invented 3D NMR, which is MRI, were there talking about rat brains. So you got, as a student, a chance to come early and eat cookies and have a cup of coffee and talk to the guy while having a donut and, you know, meet him. And then you sat there in the lecture and listened to all of this. And if it was your area of expertise, and maybe your professor or you were asking questions of these people, but you got exposure to it. So then you could take that stuff back if you want into your lab or you could build a relationship where you now call that person up over the phone and establish uh, inner lab working, which is what I was doing with, I, I met Elizabeth Blackburn at a Gordon conference in Connecticut. Tom, I met in the lab at, when he came and gave a talk and he was the NIH committee member over us. So it's political, as you know. Um, Carol Greider, I also met at the Gordon Conference, and then I worked with her, and we were getting material back and forth between the labs. So the whole thing was with these instruments and the computer technology. Once I got worked out, then they sent us a HeLa cell line, right? It was a big deal. Oh, we're getting HeLa, and and... Rangan Nathan gets to work with Gila now, and he's using the protocol, which you remember ProMega, Boranger Mannheim. I got some of these things on the shelf over here. They're recipes for the lab. You, you master them. They're called protocols. So the Lambda protocol for transfection and Gila was a big deal. So the, once those assays, like what Elizabeth Blackburn did with the telomerase assay, where she was using the telomerase sequencing of the telomere sequences, right? Or what we did in the lab was the Sanger method sequencing off the telomere to show the length or my PCR, which was the telomere PCR. Those methods move from the ciliates right to HeLa. And so we knew how they worked real good on the ciliate because we had a lot of material. Then you move over here. Now, you're getting your results and you're making conjectures or you're using the antibody to see if you can get that epitope over in that HeLa cell that came over here from Euplodes or Oxytrica or Stalinikia or Tetrahymena. And you're moving over and you're building a knowledge base, which all started Oligo version one, um, GenBank version one on the Vax VMS platform deck alpha from massachusetts up there all my friends from deck alpha mark up in massachusetts and alta vista i work with them braintree and the stories of boston which i've been up there anyway the point is that the evolution of those things brought us to gila and those things never stopped so that Moore's Law curve with the ability to process and gather data like that very quickly from the instrumentation 
allowed you to then with the technology, the instruments, right? We're talking detector technology, mass spectrometry of proteins, or MRI, a polypeptide uh, to get structural information. Or in my case, I was I the holy grail of all of this, which set check off was after you solubilize a tumor binding protein or any protein, you want to crystallize it. Then you want to take it up to the Siemens diffractometer that Dr. Schultz had up on the floor above, and you will put that thing on the diffractometer and spin it five to 10 degrees and see if you get a diffraction pattern because of the expense of the x-ray cathode tubes. But then you rotate it 180 degrees, and then you take that to what we had, which was a Silicon Graphics Iris Tower running Insight software a $250,000 computer attached to a $4 million four-circle defractometer, and you go gather that data, that was then, okay? The computers now, we have, you know, these things. The power of these things are like the towers. You know, we had Indigo Towers and all those things, but the, the, now I can have a conversation with ChatGPT which knows all of the crystal structures in the protein database. That's I'm spooky, having a right? conversation with Dean. Spooky. Um, just, uh, uh, I've been, well, you know, sometimes it nails stuff and then sometimes I'm like, ah, yeah, I know that's, it. You've, you've snuck in a, a, what do they call them? Ghost references. Um, that's, the, that's the vernacular they've given to. Um, when it imagines a, uh, a a scientific study, and what have you, um, the, um, the the fact that these large language models are, are, are able to, uh, particularly where there's a lot of established um, literature, to synthesize it together and pull out something that's um, legible and readable, to me is um, mind blowing. If only I'd had that during my PhD years. Um, I, I'm not sure you can even have PhDs as we recognize them now anymore because of this sort of technology, the ability to sort of condense paper, take out specific, you know, the the point of it and, um, and then move on to the next. So, you know, again, um, we're, we're in a strange world, but um, Mark, uh, can I could, a quick go question? Ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Um, with, uh, uh, with, with John, I'm, I'm, I'm so, uh, I apologies, John, we weren't introduced. Um, it's the first time I've met John. I recognize it. Yeah. I recognize from the Allison. I know who you are me. now. So, um, there's, uh, <laughs> I was just was wondering who you were, but, uh, you're, you're, you're the garlic vape dude. <laughs> so, now I know Excuse who you are. I don't regulate my ace too. Okay. Uh, the topic of, uh, you mentioned Southern Blot, and uh, I mean, I don't mention these technologies because I uh, I would be, I would absurdly uh, fumble the ball. It's just not my area of expertise. But um, is there any meaningful, uh, with respect to these cell lines, uh, difference between Southern Blot and what uh, what is known as Western blot? 
uh, 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 the processes. And, and I ask because the person who coined the phrase and invented Western block, Robert Nowinski, who was a key person at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Laboratory, ran that protocol 201, was a student at Cornell of the Chester Southam. That is the guy in the video. Uh, who is doing those HeLa cell injections at in Ohio State. So it's one level removed from that photo and these HeLa and that HeLa work, which might have actually been more virotherapy than HeLa-focused, but either way, and Western blot. So, and so I ask, I'm wondering what the difference is and maybe if that difference can help me understand why the person, a person connected to Chester Southam and HeLa cell work invented Western blot. Yep. I, I'll give you the 40,000 foot view. And if you want to ask details, you can. So let's, let's talk about Southern, Northern and Western blots. A Southern blot is when I have my DNA. That's a distribution of genes. I have it baked on a nitrocellulose. And then I introduce a radioactive or fluorescent probe that I hybridize to the location of it. So the DNA base pair homology is what I'm taking advantage of there to find a DNA sequence. Okay, that's a southern blot. A northern blot, which I have to give a shout out to my one of my favorite lab colleagues. Her name was. Angela Adams, a great granddaughter of John Quincy and Samuel Adams, a great great granddaughter. Anyway, she's in my lab. She worked on RNA. So the next assay that you want to know about or you're taught about in the textbook is a whole different thing than doing it in the lab. It's a whole different thing. There's a lot of tears in the lab. <laughs> so Northern Blot is when I, I take RNA and I use, which is a pain in the ass to work with, okay, which is where the innovations have been because it's super clean methods, right? And you got to get that RNA from that cell onto the nitrocellulose without it digesting. That's, okay, you get it on there, and then you can probe it with a DNA oligo, and that's a northern blot because that what that tells you what that allows you to see is the transcription levels of your transcript, your RNA transcript, especially if you're studying ciliates or any cell, ELO. Then what you asked me about Western blot. So way downstream, after you, you do, you master those other assays, you do cloning, okay, which I didn't talk about, which I did a lot of, and then you do protein expression. Well, if you're lucky, your protein folds into the proper 3D conformation of a nanomachine at equilibrium, known as delta G equals zero. It's a thermodynamic state. And there can be many for a uh, protein. Well, with either a native cell or cell line, okay, you have proteins in those cell lines. You run them in a gel called SDS page and you stain that with Kamasi blue. 
and you can see all the bands for the different sizes. And depending on your protocol, you may have some things that restrict, like you may have done the cesium chloride ultra centrifugation to get out certain sizes before you ran that SDS page and get those bands. Okay. You're in another kind of gel that's non-denaturing and you transfer that to nitrocellulose and the proteins are now stuck to the nitrocellulose. Then I hybridize with the protocol for Western blot, which is a casein and the other milk things and your monoclonal antibody. And that monoclonal antibody is the one you grew in mouse over there in the ciliates. And now the protein that I did when I did my Western blots was the one I grew in bacteria. And that proved that I had protein expression of that protein. And so it's a way of, it's a way of saying that the monoclonal antibody that has been validated as a standard almost that's used in the fish experiments for all the nice fluorescent microscopy and all those things in different cycles. It's a way of saying that that protein is right there in the epitope and it's validated just like Northern or Southern blots. It's just the Western blot. And that's, that's the difference between those three things. I kind of a high level. I'm, you know, the art is like anything. It's like riding a bicycle, right? The first time you do it, you got training wheels on. Then you do it a few times, and now your results look nice in a paper. <laughs> At first, you know, they might, you might not get any results, and you're, you know, that's where the tears come in. Um, but does that make sense? So he could go and look, he could go and take those things that we had in the ciliates. And the bacteria in the yeast, which I didn't go into the yeast, but you could take the, because then I can go make a ton of antibody once I characterize that bacterial expressed protein that I can grow in batches. I can grow it in containers and carboys and all that at huge amounts. Then I can go over to the mice and inject them or go over to the monkey, inject them, make a ton of antibody, take it out of there using the protocols for that, which are well-known and established. And then I can go and put them on Gila and verify that, that things are there um, at different times of the life cycle. I did hear, did you use the word art? Did I hear that word? Uh, it's an well, I, I say, I say art and practice the art because when an artist, a typical artist works with canvas and they create beauty and beauties in the eye of the beholder. But a scientist, to a scientist, when you go in a lab, okay, when you're a newbie, you're learning in the beginning, okay? You're learning the practice of the art. And then this is in a lot of patents. I have several patents. But once you are to the point where you go from crawling to walking, the next part of any indoctrination or these programs are you are now designing experiments, okay? You're the artist. You design them. You design them, and you have to do something novel enough so that when you're sitting in front of a committee or doctoral committee or whatever, you know, you graduate with something to say, and it's not just the coursework from a textbook, it's novel. It's a novel thing, and that's the whole, because then you gotta go in the real world and do that. 
either as a professor or you go to work in big pharma or industry and it goes from there. So I, I told Karma Doc the other day, I was laughing. You know, the whole educational thing is a big playpen. You're inside of that playpen and you're, you have boundaries and you work in there. And then you go into industry and there's a lot of money and instruments you never had in that playpen. And then maybe you even go into deep state, which I've been there. You go in there and now there's endless money and the things you have, <laughs> the things that you have access to are, uh, can be incredible compared to what you had back there in the scholastic environment where they always, they were publisher parish or did I get my grant funded? Um, and all of that and the stress comes off and when the stress comes off, you can be more creative. So with the art thing, I was never taught all these Nobel laureates around me. I was never taught. DNA is a computer language. They, they, here we are, GenBank. We got the oligosynthesis lab. We're playing with PCRs. We're doing a number of recombinant DNA. You know, did anybody stop to think, here I am with binary code compiled by ANSI C or C++ and zero one. Did ever, anybody ever stop to think about the things like zero, one, two, and three is a self-correcting computer language for animated matter. No, we didn't have any of those conversations because the silo that I was in, okay, and I'm not being rude here, the silo, and it was very compartmentalized when you think about it. Those people in there were coming at the problem from a perspective of, cell biology or molecular biology or biochemistry. So where I had the turbulence with check, I did have turbulence with that man. And my professor was, as soon as I cited a physical chemistry paper and we started talking thermodynamics and those functions in terms of protein structure and function, all of a sudden, you know, I had a professor, my professor, didn't know the difference between enthalpy and temperature. <laughs> and so we're not talking amongst each other, but there's egos. So check is a huge ego, right? Then I've got my professor. She's got her ego, and I got to contend with her. And working, Kevin, you can validate this. You work in a lab, it's like a marriage you either get along with your professor or you don't. The same thing, right? So, you know, when you are trying to impose reality and perturbate what has been going on with science, which is all of it, the practice of the art, we try to do that. And you, you are having success with it. And you upset somebody like Tom Check, Steve Schultz at UC Berkeley because you accidentally grew crystals in your dialysis chamber, or you you did something like that. They they're not scientists in anymore. Their egos take over and they lose control. And the next thing you know, you're way down here on the totem pole, and they're way up there in the totem pole. And the science doesn't matter anymore. The art is like. It's like, come on, guys. I thought we were here to try to 
stop cancer or help people that were dying or do something novel. And then now I'm a punching bag, but I'm bigger than them. So, you know, there's a problem for them. So it creates, it damages, it damages the art of science. It damages the truth in science and the transparency of it. And now we've seen so much of it that, and I'm sure you can equate this, Kevin, it makes you want to throw up at times. I know I've seen you talk. I know your frustrations. I understand it. I see it. And, um, you know, that feeling of let's, can I just, you know, vomit, you get it, you get it. And then you have it so many times that finally you wake up one morning and you're just angry in the world. And, you know, you want to go in the lab and you don't want to do any work. You just want to choke the lady to death. That's the story of the truth in the real world that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, um, that politics is a difficult issue. Um, I want to ask Mark. So, what's the what's George's issue around healer cells right now? Can you encapsulate that, and then maybe we can um, confirm or rebut something. Uh, I will. I'm not sure I could serve that that well i will say what little i can probably relay or how it came about uh the uh the topic of contamination you guys are familiar with all of these really hot <laughs> twitter threads which have happened over the last few weeks i guess uh the topic of sv40 simian virus 40 um the George has talked a lot about the rising cancer rates. Um, we've seen, uh, we have anecdotal evidence of more uh, both cancer and uh, neurological issues. I don't really know what the hard data is. Someone like a John Bowen, I think, has a more tangible number to work with. And the knowing that there were these 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 increased rates uh and now that the topic of contamination has been put out there um i still not really sure i'm kind of embarrassed i guess uh um i mean he george moves really fast with the way he approaches problems right and that, that's putting him oddly dude but well it has <laughs> you know it has uh, uh it has uh, merits it has you know sometimes it can be a little a little a little wonky and then sometimes it can actually cause people to engage in conversation they wouldn't have had otherwise so um you know i uh, i find it beneficial um uh to have that type of approach within the room okay and uh for him the uh and i want to say for him because it sounds like it's it's he it's only his idea um but uh i think he's talked with i don't know who he's completely talked with i know he's had some co- engagements with paul cottrell um and the uh 
it's it shifted to the possibility of HeLa cells being involved in this contamination somehow. But again, they're they're full cells. We don't have whole cells, as far as I know, being claimed to be in any of the uh, vaccine products. Um, well, I watched the I watched. Again, I'm really sorry. I, I feel embarrassed. I mean, you know, I'm I'm friends with them. I've, you know, we've collaborated on a lot of different things, and I, I feel embarrassed that I can't better represent it. Uh, I just haven't quite captured it myself. But for him talking about, I'm sorry, Charles, I apologize. I didn't mean to cut you off. But uh, for uh, when he started mentioning, I was like, okay, well, we've looked at that in the past. Uh, you know, I tied up a few things, found a really interesting documentary, made me think about some other stuff. Um, George is, uh, uh, feels compelled to tie the HeLa cell story to what's happening right now. And uh, I just I just don't know. I just don't really have a, a strong position on it. I think it's really important, and I think it's going to pay a huge dividend. I just don't fully understand his his angle. And I'm sorry, George, if you're watching this. That's not I – just, I just don't know. Well, I've, I've seen the video that George posted a few hours ago on his Twitter. I watched all four hours of the day – I guess it was the day before yesterday, whenever he was on with – uh, the missing link, and then Kevin was on the next day. And, and Paul brought up some really good points because Paul was was t- talking in reference to John Collins' uh, H1N1 1918 hypothesis, there being some sort of pseudovirus uh, construct that was released around the same time. And what Paul was saying in that interview was that Yes, you you see you see the timing of of, of the attempt to kind of quash uh, data related to H one N one or related to flu data all around the same time in March of twenty seventeen, and I, I remember just explicitly because I was sick then, and that's when I started looking Wait, at the Johns Hopkins data myself. You mean twenty twenty? I'm sorry, March twenty March. It was well, it was March thirteenth of 2020 actually it was March 10th when I started looking at the data, but it was the third week of March in 2020 when around the world you saw this, this change. But what Paul said is when he went, he went back and he was looking at all the sequencing. What he has not seen is the signature anywhere in any of these independent laboratories that backed it up, which is the, which what he, what Paul was saying was the main problem that he had with it. And so the main problem that that I think that I have, I, I, I don't want to speak for Kevin, but the main problem that I have with this is that yes, we have hella cells. We we know that they've been, they were contaminating, and it created this huge controversy in the early seventies. Whenever they realized this, and so you know, a decade of research was wasted. Um, but in this case, yes, it's an interesting hypothesis, but. We we haven't seen the data that can that that says okay, this is hella. What we have seen is several, I say several, dozens of other mechanisms, different crosstalks, um, different epitopes on the spike protein, um, then the plasmids, the lipoplexes ca- caused by the plasmids breaking down in shipment, 
Um, there's a whole host of other things that could be oncogenic that could be driving this. And so, yes, I think, I think it's important that we look and say, okay, is there, could, could there be helicontamination within these batches? Yes. What I would say is that given everything that we already know, all the epitopes that we've already seen and the plasmids and the S40, SV40 promoter, which is not the virus, it's just a promoter. And I think um, we, and have to, we have to... All of this. those things... Sorry, Charles, to interrupt you. ...are more likely. I want to I make sure that this is hammered home so people really understand it, because I've seen people running off left, right, and center, um, not George specifically, but there's not SV40, the virus, in this contamination that they've found. Right? It, it's literally a small... Um, 72 base pair um, sequence that they know that they can put into a plasmid to increase its ability to um, spit Replicate. out the product that you you want it to do. Or, or um, I'm not sure replication is the mm. issue here. It's it's making the product of the what's encoded on the plasmid. Right, it's it's an it's for some reason, and we could get into the biochemistry of why that could be. But the um, there's there's not SV40, and I would be very surprised knowing what I know about tissue banks and cell culture banks that you would have HeLa contamination like they did in the 70s that that that's a difficult one to bite down onto and i would i would at first be looking at what the signals we can see right now with respect to the um as, as charles was saying just the epitopes that we do see the um the crossover with um the known properties of um HIV um, fusion peptide as well. The um, there's there's many many things that could be pursued that are um, scientifically more grounded than uh, the than I don't know Pfizer's labs being. And, and I'm not I'm not even sure that. I want to say that they might have been using a um, bacterial step in their um, expression. Well, they, they were just reproducing it. They had two different methods in which they were doing it, and in one it was it was more pure, and then they switched to E. coli to mass produce, right, right. which they had never done before. And as Christie or Kevin, but in, in my case it was Christie. She she had done lipid nanoparticle work before several different projects for multiple different companies, and there's so many different aspects. So and they were proven out by what Kevin found. So the breakdowns of the plasmids, the fact that there's water inside the plasmids, the fact that the net charge causes these issues, the fact that even just in shipping, if the the 
even if it's frozen, you, you can get destabilization, but you know, you're going to get destabilization over time. Now, an interesting paper that just came out last week, what it showed was ironically that the longer the period of time post manufacture, the fewer um, adverse events there were. So I don't know if that means that it just broke down to the point where it was completely useless or what, but most of the adverse events were occurring closer to, but the bottom line is, is that within a matter of a few days, not a matter of 90 days, within a matter of a few days at anything approaching a temperature that wasn't negative 70 Celsius or whatever it was, um, they were seeing the plasmids themselves. And we're not talking about expired ones. We're talking about straight off the lot. You saw that the, the plasmids started to break down because the plasmids are formed by taking several different lipid nanoparticle pieces with different charge, and then they have the RNA and then the symbols when it gets sent through this little machine. And over time, that breaks down. And so the fact that there's that high level of plasmid in there, and the fact that we know, since it's been now confirmed across, across the labs, across the world, and the fact that we know that the plasmid can either get um, swallowed by the lipid nanoparticle or it can, or it can attract net lipid nanoparticles itself. There's two different types of lipoplexus that can form. And just the plasmids interacting with the microbiome inside your body can do really bad things, can lead to oncogenic. Just the fact that it can uh, translate to the nucleus can do bad things. Just the fact that there's crosstalk can be oncogenic. The the if the lipoplex is where the plasmid attracts a bunch of lipid nanoparticles, then that can cause microclotting. But if it happens the other way, where a plasmid gets inside the lipid nanoparticle, then that can get transmitted directly to the nucleus, and that can be a turbo cancer. And so, we all, what we already have is proof that this is that this is happening. It's now been confirmed, and so. I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong to say okay could there be hella contamination in there? What I would say is that we should look at that and we should be testing it in addition to everything else. But given what we know about what was happening and the fact that the plasmids, the the, the entire purpose of the plasmids is that can reproduce these copies over and over again. So if you don't need helicontamination for horrible, horrific oncogenesis to be taking place. And so we I, have to be, I would say that we have to be careful about attributing any one thing. In fact, what Kevin and I have argued is that there is no one specific problem. This is a multitude of different problems, which is partially why they're able to, um, they're able to claim plausible deniability because they just put a giant mix of different shit in there and it could be any number of things and they're suppressing data. So that way we have to tease it out over time. I mean, it's, I, so I don't think, I don't want to sit here and, and over hyper-focus on something when we already know there's other things that are working. So I would say we should bring this in and we should look at it. But we shouldn't. At the same time, we shouldn't hyper focus on it.
I agree with you, and here's why. Contamination is so 1963-ish. It's sad. And so the general population doesn't even know the methodologies that we've been talking here tonight that are, you know, scholastic uh, PhD level or maybe master's thesis work in textbook bachelors. The general population has no idea. So, yes, I agree back there. I know Judith Baker. I agree with those problems and the contamination way back there. That stuff that we were doing in the 90s and 2000s, the work, the art, and the finite results were dependent on cleaning up all that contamination. This is year 2023. Quality assurance and quality control of manufacturing is scrutinized based on the efficiency of what you're trying to do in any chemical industry, whether it's biochemical, molecular, you know, oil. And so the contamination story, I don't buy. The story that I buy is this one. I did, I built a lot of plasmids, custom built and put them in bacteria, okay? For cloning and protein expression. When I saw the 1981 paper that Kevin cited, for the tandem repeat of the 72 base promoter for SV40 integrated on a plasmid to express the tianogen protein that led to P53 suppression. As soon as I saw that, and I saw Kevin's paper where he sequenced a plasmid and they put a spike protein, then I said, uh, to ask Google, I said, you know, Spike protein, P53 suppression, and boom, a whole lot of papers come out. That is software programming. So the beauty of a plasmid, the whole thing about plasmid, why can you work with plasmid? There's no telomeres. You don't have to worry about telomere degradation. You transfect back and forth. Bacteria is child's play. You can make a billion plasmids in bacteria, and now you got a ton of uh, material. You cloned it up. Now you got it in a... In a now you got a ton of material. Now I can sit back and use polyethylene glycol and graphene oxide and a whole bunch of micelle technologies to right. encapsulate that plasmid to transfect a eukaryote to get partial expression into eukaryote, which is what that 81 paper said. So now I'm partially expressing spike protein inside that cell outside of the haploid 46 chromosomes. And that is what does the damage. And I agree with you. And I've seen the Kevin paper, Kevin's paper. And this is dangerous. It's dangerous because for me as a scientist, I'll tell you why it's dangerous. Those cells run as a software program with RNA transcription levels that yep. run that cell under a program. And now I perturbate that program by introducing digital code. Where have I seen that before? Huh. How about the Microsoft viruses that we all know about and live with? Yep. All the exploits. So now I exploit that cell, okay? It's eukaryotic cell. And I introduce... I take normal programming and I introduce cancer programming and boom, the population, it explodes. But you're not going to get that kind of 
explanation or even an understanding from a medical doctor who works exactly, in the clinic because they never went in a lab and did the work ever. Yep. Not yet, never. And so you, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what the problem is right there. I agree. And then so, uh, the contamination I, 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 story. Is there, so uh, this is, uh, I know that I'm I really am going against the, the, the mainstream here in so many ways, but do you uh, agree that there is code that is like, like, like there's machine code within the human DNA that is there to cause cancer and sometimes it's just on well, or, or off? Well, the human body is always producing cancer cells. Uh, in fact, Paul Cottrell yesterday, he he said it. He's he's smarter than me in this, but I think he, he worded it a little incorrectly because he, he was just saying the human body is always producing cancers. But what the human body is always doing is there are aberrant cells all the time that are popping up. And through a variety of different crosstalks and signaling, what happens is, is that your, your immune system says, oh, and snipes them and takes them out. And then where I've been coming from is that because of the various different immune dysregulation peptide, from, and not just the, the DC sign receptors, because that's more of an infiltration thing, but everything from the SEB superantigen motif that sits behind the furin cleavage site, there's so many different things that are all designed to infiltrate while at the same time overactivate and dysregulate our immune response. So the virus is able to, to get more um, ingratiated. And, and we saw this because when it goes into the lungs and then there's fear and cleavage, well, okay, that's there's other viruses that do that. But no other virus has a 14 amino acid SEB sequence which, by the way, was part of our bioweapons program back in the 1950s and 60s, that sits behind that. So what happens is, is that your body reacts, then it exposes the superantigen. So after, and so not everything goes into the cell, and then you attract, instead of 0.001% of your immune system, you attract 20% of the MHC1, um, so you get an overreaction to the lungs. Well, guess what happens when that happens? Well, those dendritic cells that come over there, then they get infiltrated by these epitopes and that we've already seen because we've seen the, the antibodies, the 2G12 antibodies that are, the, are, are some of the same antibodies from the same type of receptors on GP120. So we know that at least part of this is definitely taking place. And we've seen the results because then we see the massive depletion in T lymphocytes in severe cases. And you see it before a lot, often before they even get severe. They can tell that it's going to be severe specifically because there, there's already that, that degradation. So then. Charles, Charles, I'm sorry, but you, there's no degradation of T lymphocytes. That's your toxic heterosexual lifestyle. <laughs> sorry, that was sorry. That was really bad, really bad. Okay, so, but, but, but what what I was trying to say is that is that your body is always dealing with these things, but but this virus and the spike epitope in the vaccine 
however you want to look at it, they are producing similar results, whether you had the virus or you had the vaccine. Uh, we've seen that in paper after paper after paper. So yeah, but let me ask you a question. Yes. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Go ahead. Where did the exact digital code for that fear and cleavage site come from? Because it's published and patented. I gave I gave that paper to Congress five months before it was published. And I I've I've talked to two of the authors now. The nineteen nucleotide okay. paper is okay. I'm referring to the Moderna sequence. What I'm getting at, no. The exact Furin cleavage sequence came up from a 2004 SARS in Hong Kong. Its exact strain is HCO-0C43. Correct. I believe it's that's uh, well, the actual number. Okay. Now, that big of a sequence, okay, but that big of a sequence, okay, that big of a sequence was taken out of that patient in Hong Kong okay that was having complications and it was put via a provisional patent that was filed in 2016 into the recombinant work of seven spike proteins okay they all seven yeah. had it okay those seven made it into every single variant of covid 19 sars cov 2 and all the vaccines like the magic. probability okay so what i'm saying is that was engineered, okay? That was engineered uh, well, from the clinic yeah. in the from industry. The yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're in a agreement about the engineering well, aspect. Well, and, what I, what, no, no, no. Where I was going with that, Charles, and this is important, okay? I, I mentioned before, I was never taught about the digital codes. So a lot of my life has spent, I worked for CINSA, and I did a lot of computer work, 35 computer languages. This is what I wasn't taught. It is very important. I learned this from Chuck Missler, who was a U.S. Navy veteran, invented FRAM, and also did the wiring in the B-2 bomber, sold to Northrop Grumman, and the CEO of Western Digital before he passed away in 2017. I learned from this man. Okay. What I learned was this, that it was never taught to me, not by these Nobel laureates and all the people that came in there with their egos on, never taught me this, okay? DNA is a digital AI computer code for animate beings on this planet that runs on the planet, okay? They didn't teach me that. The Bible taught me that. Genesis 1, you have first the plants on day three, and then on day four, you have animals. How is it that you have plants engineered in probabilities, okay, permutation of sequences from calculus one, freshman calculus? How is it you have two-dimensional sequence that fold into three-dimensional nanomachines in these plants over here that on day four are going to interact with receptors in the animal? It is engineered. And the chicken and the egg story and the digital thing that Kevin was talking about, that Missler, I learned from him, was the question of the chicken and the egg. Was it the DNA that was created first or the protein that was created first? And I heard it straight from Missler's mouth and took it to heart. They were created at the same time. They were engineered 
at the same time. That is where we're going with artificial intelligence. Uh, well, and all that. I have a, I have a master's degree in ancient history, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with, uh, with those things. So, well, I learn from the man. So what happened was, um, I never saw it before. It would have been an unfair advantage if I saw it before, because then I would have applied it. What I was applying at the time was computer analytics from the software and GenBank and Child Fossman and the proteins and Silicon Graphics Inside. The you know all the computer technology that we had, we had a we had a fiber ring in our one of the top four Archie servers in the world on campus. I was applying it. I was using what was available to me as tools in my toolbox as a scientist. Now look where we are, okay? I was sitting in front of the Silicon Graphics Iris Tower with the glasses on and the eight knobs, looking at the proteins by hand. That was old school. Today, I ask ChatGPT, which knows every single PDB crystal structure, questions that are scientific questions from my house here with my boxer shorts and t-shirt on you know uh about protein database structures and chemical reactions and surface reactions of these nanomachines that were done by hand back there so that whole thing with the digital is there the paradigm thing that the mister taught me first he put the L-chiral amino acids, okay, L-chiral, not D-chiral, in a polymer tied to the 2D calculation from the permutation of sequence and calculus and said, wait a minute, D-chiral is lethal. The whole joke about, you know, the monkeys and the typewriter and, and all that, impossible. And so those are 2D sequences that fold the 3D nanomachine geometries that are governed by the laws of thermodynamics and physics. And that sequence impacts that. So Absolutely. that's the first hint. That's the first hint that there is an AI engineering design. Okay. And I already knew because I had Sun E10Ks and E15Ks and Superdomes and inside of WorldCom that came to Verizon and I was working on identity. So we're looking at chromosomal identity, okay, as a function of whom you are, not junk DNA, your identity. So in those calculations, when you look at the probabilities of what a spike protein is for a delta G confirmation, right? You can say, in science, the probability of that specific sequence, 2D, being that three-dimensional structure when it's folded inside the operating system, you can say it with specificity. And when you go and look at it, and those probabilities are greater than 10 to the 56, 1 in 10 to the 56, that's absurd in human physics. That's not absurd in creator physics. It's human physics it's absurd in. So when I saw I that piece, I saw that piece, and then I saw Missler do one more thing. He touched me. He did in 2012 after this. Have to be careful. Uh, where did he touch you? Shouts on the doll. 
<laughs> no, he touched my heart and brain. Not that way. He, I never met the man. He touched me in terms of his thoughts and his wisdom. Thank God. Okay, so when I saw that piece, the second piece I saw the man present was irreducible complexity. You got a mousetrap. There's five components. You take one away or two away. You don't get three-fifths of a mousetrap, right? When he said, look at the flagellum and the design of the flagellum and the proteins, there's 35 proteins that make up that little motor that waves that little flagellum that makes motion. If one is missing, it doesn't work. Then he compared that to what they did at the Dearborn plant for Ford. And I saw that the probabilities of design were not human. They're not. Because I was working well, DNA Ford, chromosomal identity. Fords are not human? Or, uh, no, no. The design's not human. Because we're limited, where we are limited, and where the problem is, okay, this is where the big problem is, why we keep on with the computers and science and AI. We cannot, from scratch, from bit source, design a cell. We can barely design a protein, okay? And so we're talking yeah. about proteins that are huge, that are nanomachines, that are animate things. They're the same as if I make a solid state, I make a solid state nano machine, okay? And put it in your blood. Or I do organic chemistry in my 100, 100 I got 100 steps. Ooh, I, I got my 100 steps to 50 steps, but I made that molecule with that physical function. Now we're talking nanomolecules that do things like machines. Okay, and that is when I saw that piece, the code piece, the code piece that makes me say, and it's controversial, and you know, you throw bricks at me, whatever, that's fine. I say that a chromosome, which maintains the information of the being that it drives, is a self-replicating microprocessor that sends instruction sets in the form of RNA to the factory, the endoplasmic reticulum, to make the machines on the assembly line, like Ford, components and put them together of the whole thing, which are proteins. And that is what I got from Missler. And when I got that from Missler, okay, that resulted, without going into details, it resulted in a number of patents that in the company and outside the company, including this that saved my life, because I was not making the product. I was not, oh, I'm gonna make money off this deal. No, man, I was dying. As diabetic with EGIDs, I was dying, okay? Forget all the other shit, I'm dead, I'm not here. I'm not here for my wife and child, much less my rest of my family. That was my goal there. But that helped me to see this and so I say, we are AI. I can prove it, but we are AI created by a higher power with computing technology that is able to 
engineer and design as simple as AutoCAD or CAM or any of that, animate beings that did it way back there in the story of Genesis or the scrolls on the rocks that we cannot do because we are bound, we're bound by the Moore's law and the computers that drive the instruments that what we do is we simulate, we simulate scenario and then we perturbate it and look at results. Uh, well, we simulate. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I'm a Christian personally. So, um, so like my tattoos are Koine Greek, I can read them. Um, but I, that's so that's where I think that when, when I look at the, this problem that we have, when you, you're talking about perturbations, well, I think that's what it is because I think, I think we're smart enough now to, to have understood the hell of problem. And we're sm also smart enough to know the negative results of these epitopes or these plasmids or these other things. We don't, we don't understand all of it, but we understand that when we, when we put this shit sandwich together, it's going to produce like an away function or probability curve. It's going to, it's going to produce a certain amount of deleterious effects. And that's the beauty of this. What, you know, what I think is a bioweapon is the fact that it creates that plausible deniability because it creates those perturbations. Th they can't reproduce nature but they don't have to all they have to do is produce something that is antagonistic enough in enough different ways that it can that it can create all these problems inside this incredibly complex machine inside of us and and like i said it's, it's not it's it's not that there might not be a hell of contamination in some of these things what i'm saying is is that there doesn't have to be because if you think about it from the perspective of somebody who's doing this, they're just trying to create as many perturbations as possible. That's it. Um, I mean, Kevin and I spend a lot of time talking about this. It's not that they make this mass, this incredible, beautiful thing that's perfect, that works amazing. That's not what they need. And um, and so and and so I think I think we ha we have to look at it from a macro perspective because we don't even understand all the different ways in which this is interacting with her body. But after 400,000 papers, I've only read 3000 of them, but after 400,000 papers and counting, we're still nowhere even close to understanding it all. And, but what we do understand is that there are dozens of pathways. And so if Hella is one of those, then yes, that's actually a good thing because that that's something that we can attack and that we can approach. But I would also say that that's a bad thing because I think this mRNA technology is, is, is insane. It's dangerous. And, and so it, it, I don't, I don't want people to think, oh, okay, well, if we just tweak one thing here, then it'll all get better because the problem is the mRNA. The problem is also the plasmids. The problem is the breakdown of the plasmids. The problem is, it's it's not one specific thing, and I don't want to give them an out. That's that's what I'm terrified of. I don't want to give them a single out. I, the public needs to understand that they have. They're looking at well, this that, from. Well, don't just look at it like any any other engineering or scientific problem, which is that they'll be able to isolate specific variables and. Um, oh yeah, silo the variables. Yeah. Um, and. 
Yeah, well, we have the source code, right? But we don't have the blueprint for the engineering. That's the problem. So the the okay. the thing yeah, with the they, they will just make the assumption that they can bootstrap from the if you call it genetic material, the source code, and they'll they'll make the presumption that they're able to um, get enough insight into its function to be able to um, yeah. Well, this was an experiment, so they're trying to do that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're doing the science. <laughs> yeah. But but the point is, I got normal HeLa cell code over here, and then I got HeLa cancer cell over here. And the code, the organization of the information and what the information represents, over here is normal, over here is cancer. I compare and contrast the chromosomal information because over here I got normal cells that are running normal. And once I learn how to make this condition and repeat this condition, I then learn the steps. Okay. And I can weaponize that. Right. And it's a what it can be a weapon, but it can also be a path to doing science to cure people of cancer. And so the value of the genomes, what George is saying, and I get it, 100% get it, the value of the genomic data relative to where we are in terms of AI and computing power today and national security tied to that is not only valuable to the integrity of us as a race going on and not dying and having death, but you can make a lot of money doing these things. Absolutely. Inside of inside this little debt system that we live in, the ones that I feel like I'm down here on the totem pole, and you know that's the uh, feeling that you step get. off the totem pole, and um, you know, I, for people getting lost in the um, the scientific vernacular, uh, what I would point people to is every time that you'll see a research project, uh, a thesis, etc. I know I've gone through it. Everything is couched in, we're gonna help condition X, Y, or Z, right? That's, that's how they do this. And the problem is, is that behind that is the weaponeers who can take whatever finding that you as a you know, naive grad student thinking that you're gonna help help the world with and it, it gets taken and you know it, it, even without your because you've published it right because you've published it it's out there and it adds to the canon and um, that those people are able to take those pieces where you think it's doing good and they're able to plug them into their particular jigsaw puzzle that says ah, we can tweak or come at that particular issue with this particular epitope and we can cause um that we, we predict that we'll cause this type of problem and i think that we've seen that um mirrored in what what is sars right and you can look at those epitopes and the open reading frames and they are geared towards well like i say there's levels of disease and i think that they're they're operating now beyond 
viruses. They're down in this protein misfolding space. And this is this is why things like um oh, I forgot the name of the coding where they alpha fold, right? Where they did the um they predicted the ability to re, uh, reconstruct and the folding problem of one protein, right? But once once they've got one protein, they can start to think about others, and then you know a lot of it's benchtop um, chemistry. Still, you've still got to do that step. But disease, you know, what is disease? Well, it happens again across. Uh, you're gonna put your hand up, Mark. Or... Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. I, I I would raise a hand. I would use a raise a hand button, but I don't see it here on Zoom. There is one, I think. Yeah, down in reactions. Is it reactions? Raise I hand. I see. It says recognize hand gestures, and I got play chime. That's the only two options it gave me. Uh, recognize maybe hand it's, gestures. I don't know. Well, anyway, floor's yours, bro. Uh, well, it's, it'd be short. I um. So the uh, the 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 model of a digital computer is 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 a model uh it's it's a uh it's a human abstraction trying to create a set of defined rules uh which we can get into a very existential discussion about what are those rules you know i mean there's there's a there's uh conversations that be had that you know in god's universe it's so you know we've actually created numbers just to try to be able to create models to understand the infinite complexity of it and digital computers are very much the same way these are artificial machines that we've created abstractions out of that and um uh while i've worked in the industry for a long time uh there is a you know a, a huge amount of variability sometimes within how code can be executed i did device drivers and operating systems and I can't tell you how many times I would have been called to a site and uh, given the nature of the product I worked on, sometimes I would actually have to go to two data centers, no code changes, and it just started to break because various environmental factors, the timing of boot up, the device discovery, who knows, you know, could have just been, you know, uh, something within the chips themselves. Uh, sometimes we, we had... Uh, uh, sometimes someone would chain a host bus adapter and the checksums uh, would work in one condition and not others. And it's just the complexity is just it's 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 mind boggling. Anyways, uh, it is. And that's still working within, you know, uh, you know, our, our our abstracted understanding by our models. Now, going back to the proteins, um, protein percent, Mark, that's exactly it. A hundred percent. You just articulate it. A hundred percent. The 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 proteins are, uh, you know, I mean, there used to there used to be. I know that these systems are are still out there. I haven't played with these for a while, but I know that there's global grids where you can you can uh, you can donate spare CPU cycles. You know, a lot of people. If you're running a lab, you probably did this, John. You would to the uh, you know that was a uh, protein folding uh you know uh, clouds uh, that, there was always and a bit you be... put in your grant mark where you claim for computer equipment and you would say 
when we're not using it, we'll we'll donate our computing time to and, and to be credits to like leaderboards yeah. <laughs> and everything else. And you'd uh, it was it was fun stuff. And then of course I I was naive enough at the time to not realize like oh I'm actually burning an extra five thousand dollars in power by doing. <laughs> I thought I was yeah. being nice. I was actually costing the company money, but either way, the I say it's because the uh, the 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 implementation of the models again, which are abstractions of themselves, of proteins are radically complicated, and it becomes a question of, well, when is it just this protein? When is it when is it functionally start to work as another protein? Where's that little gray area in the middle? And this is something that's uh, a, a dear subject of yours, Kevin is protein misfolding and where is the edge okay of when it works perfectly to maybe it does it isn't always recognized perfectly to now it's functioning as something totally different just based upon a few little folds that the surface of it appear different it highlights uh you know it very quickly the world of biology goes from this protein that protein and this insert to wow there's this whole range within the middle. Um, so is there, based on, given the fact that you studied all these variables, Kevin, and and, and the prion disease, protein misfoldings, what are your thoughts applying that to the conversation that John just had a little while ago about the more discrete, uh, predictable, possibly predictable nature of things? Um. Again, this is, look, when when I started my undergraduate, right, pre, the idea of a prion broke most people's minds, that there was this capacity to have uh, a disease-causing agent that was not a bacteria, not a virus, right? We thought we we thought we got that bit down, right? We understood that there was um, uh, well, we had the model systems, right? And and if you don't think that they're real, um, just ask yourself why governments spend billions on the bio warfare and the countermeasures to it. That's that's. Um, how serious it is the so i've you know the idea so working f working forward from the idea that you could have a protein that that becomes infectious took a long time to filter through and become accepted right and i i can remember that back and forth going on and trying to understand it at, at the time and this was also happening at the time when we were watching herds of cows be lit on fire because they they didn't know why they, they were developing big holes in their brains and as we've sort of moved forward through time and it's only within the last 10 years that the idea of misfolding and having what's called propagons be able to exist outside of what was considered to be a very very special 
case scenario with respect to the the scrapey prions of mad cow or you know the sheep disorder had been as far as i understand you know it was recognized for many many centuries actually and you knew you knew not to eat those sheep right there was a wisdom around the i don't know what you would call that folk farm farm philosophy i don't know but animal they, husbandry yeah yes. i don't know but they, they knew they knew that um sheep developed it somehow and you know we're still we're still trying to literally feel our way through this and i want to say it's only then the last few weeks that they had some degree of replication just be of interest to you mark which is um with respect to ticks acting as the vector between um, deer and producing chronic wasting disease, and which it seems to be a ever growing problem on the uh, in the U.S. And I've sort of reached the point where, as we accepted that um, things like Alzheimer's, things like Parkinson's, not just Parkinson's, you can um, there are systemic amyloidogenic disorders and um, diabetes as being recognized as one of those as well. I think what we're going to find is that there are going to be many, many, many different peptides and um, not just peptides, but fragments that have this property. And again, you, you, I would make the presumption a bit like you're having... When they say, "Oh, you, 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 you're developing cancer all the time, but your immune system is coming in and and getting rid of them," we have to presume that there's some. The body has some innate capacity to recognise that particular issue and say a, a protein is not functioning. And with, there's a pathway called lysosomal degradation, where I, I I'll make the presumption is as the cell is making proteins. It's spitting, I don't know, one out of every hundred is misfolded. And so there, there are whole mechanisms there that say, take that, break it down, and we'll reconstitute the amino acids or we'll, we'll excrete them out and, and start, a, start again. Um, as, it, as it relates to um, computing, I think with we have a far better handle on computers because they're our inventions right we're still we're still figuring out what life is and when you take a sort of metaphysical um view of the the the, the problem at hand um you're going to come up with you know you come up with a christian answer to this debate you're going to come up with a um islamic jewish buddhist hindu uh, as to what the source of life is and how there are these all these corrective mechanisms i i, I don't know i'm um my my concern is is that they've cottoned on to they can they can trigger disease by or, or trigger pathological biology by seeding these epitopes into the environment and cause long-term Damage now. Whether nature can overcome that over sort of evolutionary timescales, I would have. I would have to presume that's the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. 
right? It's it's kind of like saying, um, how can how can we exist when there are all these um, elements attacking the bio, your, your biology all the time, right? You're covered in bacteria. You've covered. You're you're swimming in a virome, and you're. We have a very sophisticated, um, multi-layered defense in place that we've co-evolved with to make sure that we can persist. And you know, it just comes down to that old saying of life finds a life finds a way. And the um, beyond that, I don't know. I don't know how much I can add to it except we are seeing more and more of these we're recognizing more of these peptides as being misfolding disorders and i expect there to be many many more because potentially in theory it could be all peptides right it, it well, just has it, the goal of, of bioweapons for for decades has been a to aerosolize naturally spread via aerosol because it's the most effective because it bypasses most of the body's defenses and then vaccines obviously bypass them as well um but the, the other but the bigger thing is immune dysregulation because you can you, you can create this massive ebola virus whether or not it it'll flame out or be able to trigger too much is you know it's a different epidemiological debate but you can create something that's super deadly but you don't have plausible deniability if you create Ebola that kills ninety percent of people, and it just magically appears, you know, like a like Ebola Zaire appearing two thousand miles away from from Zaire um, after never doing that before in twenty fourteen, and so, but I, I would say this is um, all they're trying to do is just disorder. I think there's this I there's this notion that. We give them too much credit for knowing more than they do. I, I don't think that at all. I don't think that's what they're trying to do at all. I think in this case, they're just trying to disrupt. They don't know exactly what's going to happen. They're just trying to put as much nasty stuff on there as possible to create this disordered state, which this disordered state we already know. Hypoxia fuels fear and expression. Hypoxia fuels blood-brain barrier permeability. Hypoxia fuel and all of three of those things or both of those things can fuel um, neurodegenerative, further neurodegenerative conditions and further susceptibility to neurodegenerative conditions because of X, Y, and Z. So that it's, I don't, uh, it, I don't think it's just one answer. Could it, and to bring it back to the discussion, could it be that hella cells are, are involved in some way? Yes. But I, I would say that they don't have to do that because at this point, it, I think we would have seen that, but we don't need that in this case because with the vaccines, for instance, with the plasmids, that's doing all sorts of damage, and it's it's going directly to the nucleus, and we and we yeah. in, and in I, I, multiple I just, different pathways. And so, I would just add this, right? And it's come up in the literature already, right? We, we've known it's been known with respect to the. SV40 promoter sequence, that there are, there are elements called nuclear localization signals. And that's an issue around if there's plasmid contamination. I don't, I'm not sure that you could argue that there's a safe 
level, right? Except, except literally just a prayer that, again, body's immune system would recognize a malfunctioning cell and um, take it out. But again, we don't know um, the, we don't have a good enough grasp on on the mechanisms there. And there's also a nuclear nuclear localization signal on the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, and it's at the level of the RNA and at the peptide level as well. So both both act as nuclear localization signals. Both are able to get into the nucleus. And then once once you're in there, your ability to predict what the outcomes will be becomes exponentially harder. Maybe it'll just integrate and not cause a problem at all. Maybe it'll integrate at a at a particularly sensitive region that's oncogenic. The um the fact that they've they've seeded these out into the environment just um as so like Charles was saying, it's it's just disruptive. And that's what they're looking for. Disruption to keep you on the back foot and keep momentum. Yep. What's I have the... a question for you. You made a great point, but I want to ask you. Over here, you got 13 religions across the world. Over here, you got 98% homology across all human alleles for all genes. The DNA code doesn't care what your religion is. The genes code doesn't care what your religion is. Are you sure about the that? The religion, it doesn't. The religion There'd be people code, who disagree with you. Understood. But religion, <laughs> religion, there's always a debate about religion and philosophy. The code is a machine code for those species. So if you're Indian or you're Japanese or Chinese or British or maybe Mexican, Spanish, you still have the same gene for a kidney or heart or brain. The identity piece which has now been proven that that was proven uh, back there in around November of, I want to say 2014, when people were finally realizing that, hey, this isn't, there's no junk DNA. There's no such thing as junk DNA. It's your identity. That's who you are. Your immune system comes from your junk DNA. The whole thing comes from there. So the story, as all it is a story of Adam and Eve is a singularity because I can take a kidney out of Adam and put it in Eve. I can take a liver out of Eve and put it in Adam. It's singularity. Yeah, but they're, of they're, they're not going to do so well. That's that's the well, issue. Well, there's no rejection. There's no rejection because the code is identical. And we see in all the therapies what you're always looking for a donor. Why is it? Yeah, but even, that... even, even when you get a matched donor still have to take immune suppressant therapies right even even i want to say even correct if, well except maybe if you're coming from identical twins exactly but, right? that's exactly my point i mean you identical twins that's exactly uh, my uh, point are you sure <laughs> yes 100 percent. because the the immune system that is a learned machine that learns your identity okay rejects Digital pathogens, whether they're bacterial, viral, another organ that came from a donor, 
it rejects them because it it learns your DNA code and it doesn't attack yours until malfunctions, of course. It doesn't attack it. It attacks anything that doesn't match yours. So that design, the art design is there, but my, my point was the the reason that the religious stories are part important. The men censored just like the newspapers, the TV, and everything. It's all been censored. Remember the book burning of the Romans? You know, I'm a Christian. Don't hold it against me, Catholic, but I respect the other religions. All the scrolls and the rock. So when I listen to Billy Carson say that the DNA code was branded by higher beings, okay, I respect that I'm a human and I don't have a computer technology to design the DNA being from scratch to articulate whether it was branded or not. I got to go to scrolls. So the piece where the religions are important in terms of historical are the, his, the creator probabilities versus in the beginning, in the singularity event for AI machine that's us, Versus what happens downstream, and I'm articulating it from the Christian Bible, Genesis 6. We have fall income here. They're, they're, that's a generic term. They're angelic. They're non-human entities. And that code is then fragmenting the code of us. The creator created us. Then that code's fragmented the warnings that we get. We get the warnings on the rock i don't trust the paper because of oh the what we've lived through here with the lancet articles what we've lived through with cnn and fox news and you know i'm not going deep into it but i don't have to preach i don't stand on podium preach at okay the code things that we see there in a four-digit code self-correcting we see it in binary code. Oh, we made it. We see it happening. So, yes. And then the other part I was going to say was Chow Fossman in the beginning, where we were, and Chow Fossman back there was we had no, we had very little information in GenBank and PDB. Okay. Very little computers. We had the algorithms. Now we refine the algorithms on a huge data set of a database of crystal structures, a database of machine learned information in my database from all my papers. And GenBank is now huge. So I have a big, huge data set. So now I have a huge data set, my statistics for my algorithms like Chow Fossman that say, Here's my 2D sequence for prion, whether it's prion, whether it's a, a pathogen, so venom, snake venom <laughs> seems to be popular these days, or just a protein with a polymerase function. I can then say, based on digital sequence, with a high probability, I may have this function, right? So for me, what I saw was two things that shocked me. I'll introduce right here. It was Dr. Henry Nyman's of virologist. That's when I learned the spike protein Wuhan first sequence SARS-CoV-2 was in GenBank. When I looked at it, did the cal probability calculations, 
or amino acid probabilities for 3D, fold, 3D folding delta G equals zero equilibrium. Then I said, okay, what research is there in SARS? And I went and looked and I saw the mice experiments with SARS and MERS and bovine coronavirus and all the other ones where they had the control group, they had the normal mice, then they had the diabetic mice. <laughs> and they did a gene knockout on that virus of one single amino acid in SARS and those other MERS and the others. One. Same position in GenBank. 40,000 viruses in GenBank. I saw it there. Working in a lab, okay? You know how it goes. You have group meeting every week, okay? Once a year, you come in and you present your research in front of all the department, right? Then you see the colloquium stuff. You know that the conversations behind that paper that just got published in Journal Virology that's peer-reviewed, okay, has a lot of baggage behind it of how it came to be and the truth of which you're not being told if it's a deep state related research project. Many well, of these professors I'll, aren't I'll just say that they're supposed to tell you who's their funding sources, et cetera. You know, of I've, course. I've just been looking of at course. a paper with, um, you know, these magnetic, uh, magnetoelectric nanoparticles um, that they think are going to be able to read, read and write to the brain wirelessly. And um, the funding source is DARPA, um, the Navy um, <laughs> Department, I can't remember, and, and Air Force as well, and, and National uh, Kevin, Science Foundation. Kevin, the Proximal Origin authors clearly stated that, that all research is published. Right. <laughs> so there wouldn't well, be... Well, this, well, this was published. Background. This was a published paper, now. right? But um, <laughs> the... You know, I'm I'm looking at that tech. I can you can see what they're they're trying to do, but again, it's wrapped up in this idea of the and it was a review paper that I read. Then it was about treating neuropsychiatric disorders with these um, little um, nanoparticles that can respond in a magnetic field. I don't think DARPA or the Naval Intelligence Bureau, whatever the name of it is in the U.S and the Air Force are interested in depression and um, people with OCD. It's not a, um, that's not the business that they're in. Business that they're in is gaining advantage over peer adversaries, I guess is the best way of putting it. Or you could just say killing, killing over people. but. Um, it's always about gaining advantage. And the problem that we find, and this is something that we know all the, all the time, is translation from one system to another. And I'm... Oh. You, can, you can see where they're trying to head to. But there are there are innumerable blocks, and there are things 
that we what's that what was the saying from Cheney that we there are things we know there are things we know we don't know that was um oh god Rumfield uh, Rumsfeld uh, sorry was Rumfield yeah yeah and um, <laughs> no no and unknown no <laughs> yeah yeah but um it, it, we have this problem all the time and I I you know I think we've been going at this a couple of hours nearly free um oh geez so well. um. Think we should think about it's it. breakfast. Yeah, and look, I'm I'm very much on board with Mark's view that um, they they need to be able to test in as many forms and fashions as possible across as broad a spectrum of people as possible to um, iterate to the next absolutely engineering point. Um, if that requires them to un unleash a what, what should be classified as a biowarfare pathogen or tool, all right, whatever you want to call it, capacity um, agent, whatever. Yeah, um, I, I I think that these people, for sure, we know they don't have the the moral and ethical guardrails that perhaps most people do have. And, you know, that's something that Nick very eloquently demonstrates in the historical literature that they, they, they gave zero fucks back then. And I would argue they give zero fucks right now. And we're going to be dealing with the fallout of what's just been pulled off. And they managed to, acquire data that well you could argue would take a lifetime to get through but again with computing as we've mentioned um ever accelerating and becoming more sophisticated maybe they can punch through it but i i'm pretty sure that they'll still run into roadblocks and um dead ends and what have you and they'll pull whatever they think is necessary again to maintain advantage over peer adversaries that's that's the state that we find ourselves in and the well we we band together and get through this and get to the next bit where we can put our foot on a tread water till we can feel something that we can put our foot on hope it's not one of those rock fish that's gonna put you put you down but um in it, there's, but we must keep. We must maintain focus, right? And um, you know, I wish George had been here to take part in the discussion. Um, I think, I think Hila is low down on the issue right now. Did they learn a shit from bunch of shit from Hila cells? Yeah, sure. They're still learning stuff from them. They're still part of the libraries that are being used um to test stuff um of course um but i don't think i think I nick's hand i think nick's hand is raised oh sorry sorry nick you're in the top corner i didn't see you there um please sure um i wanted to respond just very briefly uh it's a pleasure to meet you john and um i i'm still kind of floored by the scope of of your career and and your investigations and and um, I wanted to 
re sort of give another quick perspective on how you characterized how 1963 contamination was. Um, and I certainly don't interpret that you meant that, that it didn't still continue to affect public health. Um, I'm, I'm in the material now looking at the uh, NCI monographs as they go year over year. Some of them are general and describe activities and investigations that go across the entire uh, institute and others are very specific about a particular type of cancer. And, and I'm seeing evidence um, well into the 90s of a broad variety of contaminations in, uh, in products, in, in the biological products that are part of the CDC schedule. So I, I, would, I would have to rebut and say that um, considering what I witnessed in my friends, uh, generally, you know, my experience with HIV AIDS was in the late 80s to the mid 90s when the cocktail uh, changed sort of the course that it, it wasn't you weren't just going to um, perish very quickly. Uh, but I saw the manifestation of all of that garbage that people, that kids had gotten from their vaccine schedule. It came forward in, you know, in, in things like progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy and um, other really difficult pathologies. And the, the big underlying theme was cancer was oncogenesis across the board. So whether it was SV40, whether it was something else, uh, a variety of the herpes family are definitely involved in, uh, in as helper viruses or satellite viruses and oncogenesis. Um, so there's, there's a whole, it's a big complex issue. And um, I'll, you know, I'll continue to share things online as I find sort of key milestones about it just to, to add some substance to that point. Um, and I, Kevin, I'm, I want you to look and John, I've got to speak about you briefly in the third person. Uh, so you're, you're as, as a case study, you're really, really important for us because of your experience with uh, intelligence uh, and defense contracts. Uh, the level and the nature of what you've done. Um, but what you've heard John describe here, Kevin, is really, you know, as he describes my art in the lab, and he also gave a very good illustration of a dual purpose. It might be to do this, but it can also be weaponized like this, the A and the B, the parallel construction model that we've discussed. Um, you know, I don't have any concerns. I certainly hope that John isn't involved in anything that will come to uh, mean the death of millions of people. But there are people that we've been studying in the history that use those same kinds of uh, psychological and uh, ethical instruments to keep themselves as, and here's the cherry on the Sunday, as John said, going into that big unlimited pot of money, that secret pot of money that isn't dependent on the rat race of publisher parish. So I think that was a really important takeaway for me tonight to hear someone talk about it in the first person about their career experience and, you know, and how they, they view the work and the potential outcomes and people that have moral misgivings about it. We've talked about what happens to them, Mark, you know, we've all <laughs> studied what happens with the four story parking garages. When you start to say, I have, I have concerns about where this science might lead. Um, so this has all been really, really cool. And uh, John, again, thank you so much for uh, everything you shared. Yeah, so that thing, Nick, about 1963 with yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald back there. Oh. Okay, yeah. so Lee Harvey Oswald is going between the small and the big lab. I actually know other people 
that were in New Orleans in that neighborhood, both CI and Mal. Mm-hmm. I know them personally. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I can I, tell I, you. I was just going to say, problem, I was just on a stream with an 80 something year old lady who was there too. You're talking about Judith? Judith, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's she Judith Baker. I know her. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I, know, yeah. I know her, but I know other people that were on the ground there. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald was flushing mice down, down the, the toilet. toilet. Yeah. And, now, and now look at you, anybody who's worked in a laboratory. You know you have biohazard disposal even the medical profession you have biohazard disposal and that's biological material that has pathogenicity into things so they had no controls because what they were doing over there was once they had the candidates for the viral material and the cancer vaccine then they went down the street to Louisiana prison and injected the prisoners and x-rayed them and did it. Now that's crude science. That's crude, yeah, crude, you crude. Can, you can take cancer cells and inject them. They don't, they, they don't work as a, a weapon. In no, it wasn't cancer cell. It was a virus. It was yeah, so, virus. so the oncogenic viruses are something very different, right? Once, once, you, once you're able to penetrate the cell membrane once you're able to get in there and this is the problem or, or this is the concern when you're seeing um nuclear localization signals right that are not only on the spike protein but also again it's it's working across scales so it's at the nucleotide level it's at the amino acid level and now we're finding out that there's contamination with these plasmids as well, and the um, that promoter is a nuclear localization signal as well. That f- th- those three things are enough for me to be looking at if if the data is real with respect to these emerging cancers. And I have many people who have contacted me saying that that after after vaccination, their relatives went downhill now thankfully uh one way of putting it but mercifully most of those tend to have been in elder elder people not not so much kids but we are beginning to see signals that younger people are taking a hit right now and you know perhaps they were destined to get cancer in another 10, 20 years time than when they did, well, are expressing it right now. Those, it's those three things that I would focus on. There are others that we could talk about with respect to the virus and the spike protein and the gene transfection as well. But we, we've got, en- or I would argue we've got enough evidence there to push in that direction and you know but if if mark wanted to get the bit between his teeth and start looking at where the research behind nuclear localization signals where did that come from who's funding that how much did they know 
and how much would they be willing to um, throw into the mix to, again, if, if, that, if what they're doing is testing on people at a mass scale, which, I, again, I think that's a very likely scenario in the current environment, just, just because... Yeah, we're the mice. We're the mice now. Monkeys. That stuff back there, monkeys, that stuff back there in terms of science today was like the cave people of science fresh off of Mingala. What you got now and what I'd, I'd look for is who's got the AI supercomputer that is banging the data in the databases for the people designing the experiments, going in the lab and doing HeLa work to design the proteins or the vectors that are toggling that cell line. The Department of and Energy. And they're hiding they're hiding the genome of it. What? what was the Department called? of Energy. Oh yeah. Well they have our friends have the you know the deal. I don't have to tell you, you know the deal. So my the, advisor the slush fund over at the DOE. Yeah. We think we know the deal. Well they they have a billion yeah. dollar they have a billion dollar database just for HIV epitopes. And the the highest um um H index score researcher at Los Alamos National Laboratories is Beck Korber, the person who created and runs that database and works hand in hand on vaccine development of Volta but specifically HIV, but for other things too. Charles, did you notice a vacuum of materials on Gerald Myers? Yes, actually. I did. Yeah, I think he got scrubbed pretty heavily. John, are you familiar with uh, geneticist at Los Alamos, Gerald Myers from the 80s? What was his work on? Uh, he did the original alignments on the uh, LA1, LA2, LA3, New York 123, San Francisco 123, U.S. HIV patients. Uh, he did sequence alignments and also uh, put forward papers indicating that he thought that HIV-1 came from a Big Bang event in the mid-70s and that all of the subtypes branched out from there. Uh, and then his work vanished pretty much. You can still find bits and pieces in the, in the NLM. I just weren't, I didn't know if you were familiar with him. I, I don't, I, that name doesn't ring a bell. That yep. HIV research, I didn't, I glazed over, I didn't go deep into it. I've come back and I've looked at some of the HIV stuff, but I, you know, that's not my area of expertise. Sure thing. However, um, being in these kind of programs, and and that's why I could say, you know, they've got unlimited resources. You know, the re the the universities, even the best universities, they've got some great equipment. Okay, but only some of those professors actually have patents and um, experience and industry that go into these areas. Well, you know Los what? Alamos. I, I would, I would say this. What I would like to see is um, if you're working at the – because what they've done is they've seeded the defense industry into academia, right, because they realize that there's a brain trust there that they can um, cajole and um, use, 
um, and I'm a personal opinion that um, if you're in those positions, especially in academia, you shouldn't be allowed patents. You shouldn't be allowed to license stuff. You shouldn't be allowed to do anything because that d destroys your ability to be objective about data that's coming, you know, emergent into the sort of public not even the public domain, but just scientific developments as they occur. And that's the, I, I would argue that's one of the biggest problems that we've had right now is that the, these, especially the big hitter scientists that, again, they, they get into the club and then they get easier access to the glamour journals, etc. They just, those are all conflicts of interest that have to be removed from that work we we need we must have a counterweight to the darker end of the spectrum where industry can essentially do what it wants behind closed doors they have the they have the resources available to them and um, because we haven't had the objectivity in the academic institutes we can see that they're riddled with um you know take uh what's his name vincent uh, Racinello. Um He's married to someone in industry. He's linked up at uh, Columbia, right, with literally uh, all of the all of the main characters that we've seen emerge out of that have become visible because of SARS-CoV-2. And SARS-CoV-2 is just one tiny, tiny little bit of the scope of academic research. And I will tell you that the, the same conflicts of interest permeate everything right now. And we must, I, I don't know, I, I would say it has, to, it has to be turned back into sort of a monastic type existence that if you, if you cut the grade and you're smart enough to be in there, that yeah, you, you can get tenure, et cetera, but you're not allowed you're not allowed the portfolios. You're not allowed the. Um, and we should be stopping this idea of, oh, you've got to make spin-offs and patents, in in academia. That's yeah, but you know why that happened, don't you, Kevin? You know why it happened because this is exactly what occurs in scholastic environments. You get professors stealing from students. You get professors presenting information as theirs at conferences that other students at other labs did all the work on. It's unethical and unprofessional. And science, you're supposed to have ethics with you did the work, you presented it, okay? And I, I'm not the only one that this has happened to. Welcome, welcome to every company in the universe, John. Right. I have <laughs> a, no, 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 no. So I, okay, you, you're preaching a choir there, and I'll tell you why. I was mentored by lawyers. I have a lot of patents. That's not the only one up there. I have a lot of them. I was mentored by them relative to the business purpose and the reason for the intellectual property in the big game, okay? A multi-billion dollar game. We're talking 200 plus billion on NYSC listed Fortune 50. Those people mentored me. The That wasn't from the university or any of that. So when all of this crap started, all of it, 
every single bit of it. Why did I go into the patent office on March 23rd, 2020 with all my assertions relative to the publications that I cite relative to the digital code? Because everything that transpired now, I knew was going to, I knew that the game was going to be played. The, 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 the political chess pieces, the NIH and the government affiliations, military, DARPA, all of it, the Fauci's, the universities, the people that just want to be um, the show doctors are going to come on and say this and that. And, and you're going to have people in this era with communications that I built part of a huge amount, 24 global data networks, okay, and communications networks encompass 98% of the globe and 98% of communications on the globe where you've got NATO involved. Okay, when you are mentored by Georgetown patent lawyers, when you are mentored by, you know, my colleague in one of my companies, a patent lawyer and electrical engineer, when you understand that game, okay, the reason that you go in the patent office with a provisional patent is because it buys you 12 months of intellectual property federal law protection. The reason that the United States patent office, okay, has given me, and I'm not gonna launder it here, they have been difficult, okay? During this time, I had two hydrogen bolt patents DOE knows about, top of DOE. During this time, because it is corrupted, the patent office is corrupted. The whole entire thing is corrupted. All the science, all of that. So why did I go in there? The reason that I went in there was because I did not want to have one single argument about an assertion that I was making relative to those codes and the publications and what my theory was based on a lot of science up front. So that when all those papers came out from this and uh, science in the, in the in the environment, in the scholastic environments and the other environments, when all those other papers came out to reinforce everything I said in the first place, based on the physics and the physical chemistry and the digital codes and biochemistry, when it came out, there wasn't going to be a single argument that they were going to make assertion on me because I already made that argument inside the United States Patent Office in a third party and validated it and time stamped it. All I needed now was to collect data on myself and my medical records and then duplicate that with hundred, hundreds of people that I could subpoena. And my medical records have been subpoenaed by the Florida Attorney General before I met with the Florida Surgeon General and the Deputy Director of the State of Florida Department of Health. Because when I saw that political system get weaponized, the court system, when I saw it being weaponized against Americans and all those areas of the government, all of them, excluding this one, I knew that if they dragged me into a courtroom, that I could subpoena all these people that I've cured. Yeah, so, okay. the, look, the, so the way, the way oh, around this is... Like I say, that's why though. Um, I agree, but the we have to have a like I say, we need some way of protecting public 
from the predations of these entities and organizations and individuals. And so we're now in a, in a time where, you know, what I would do is I would wipe out the journal industry, right? Destroy it completely. Sorry, um, Mark had his hand up, but he just disappeared. So I would wipe out the journal industry and I would make um, each department in a university have a blockchained record of their results as they're coming out right and so so if there's if there's claims as to who did what first you can say here's the scans of our lab books here's the accompanying data and it, and yes. if there's no patent incentive and there's no glamour journals to get to then it'll equalize that area where you can have a, a brain trust again that can isn't afraid to speak up when there's something like SARS-CoV-2 happening or whatever other nightmare biology that's going to emerge out of the pipeline from now over the next sort of 10 years. And unless we do that ASAP, I think we're going to be, um, I, I dread to think where it will end up. And It's Delta as chaos. I got you. I'm there with you. I agree. The system doesn't work. I'll, I'll just pass off to you the joke that I passed to my buddy. He's an electrical engineer, undergraduate with a JD degree, and my business partner. Okay. I joke with the guy. I tell him. What is a hot topic now? UAPs. All right. So you're falling. Here we go with the UAPs and the UFOs. Okay. Now, understanding patent law. If a technology was known one year before you submit it as a patent, that patent can be nullified in a courtroom. Okay. Now, you got UFOs and aliens land on the White House lawn and they reveal everything. Oh, by the way, we've known for a million years. Guess what? Under patent law, every single one of those patents is nullified. They're all nullified. They're now meaningless. So what is the humor in that? You tell that to my buddy's a patent lawyer. I tell him and I start laughing. Okay. But, you know, that's what that guy does for a living. That's how he feeds himself. And he's going he's gonna to have to learn family. to code. Gonna, we're going to have to find. But no, I'm with you. But don't you see the absurdity of it all? Uh, yeah, well, wait a minute. What's the absurdity of saying there's a creator of the planet, the galaxy, and the universe, and the digital codes, okay? If that information was known, <laughs> is known, and there is the ability to create it from scratch, then the past or have to be nullified under federal law international pct agreement as well also nullified but that is the humor of the situation kevin and it's a game it is a game where uh it's a monopoly game king of the mountain monopoly game and the ones that are up here controlling it's in george's profile i love it the you know alice in wonderland the guy behind the curtain pulling all the all of the different knobs and switches and making it happen. That's exactly what it is. We're in that, that system guys like you and me. Okay. 
we don't stand a chance against, you know, you're playing Pink Floyd, the machine, right? We, we don't stand a chance, okay? But every once in a while comes along a David and he pops Goliath in the head with a stone and then things change. We need more Davids throwing stones at Goliath and knocking it down because we're the 99%, the place is ours. Not the 1% owning 99. Okay, we're the 99 owning one. What? What's, something's wrong with that. It's, it's like a tire out of balance. You're driving a car. No, that's not balance. It's not even logical. And this is where we are now. And it's disturbing. I see it in your face. I wonder what the gears are behind your eyes thinking about these things sometimes. But that's the well, way I, I, I want to. I want to dismantle these systems that have failed us uh, uh, spectacularly over the last three years. Oh, you've had your hand up for a while. Um, if you want to jump in, yeah, I um, I didn't know I was going to get on a live stream. Karma Doc texted me a Zoom link and said I have a question. Oh, okay. Well, I'm happy to see you, bro. I've been in my sweatpants. <laughs> it's been too long. My, my T-shirt. Oh, I apologize, but um, so I do need to I have a couple errands. I need to help out with family stuff in the morning, but uh, it's been a great call. Um, the uh, uh, it's great to have the uh, you know, discussion about patents come up. It ties a lot of things together, I believe. Um, it. Uh, uh, I'm sure scientists and businesses have been uh, uh, unethically motivated multiple times because of the patent patenting issues, intellectual property. Um, I think it's a it's an even bigger. I would propose it's an even bigger topic than that, though. Uh, there is a uh, an eighty page document out of Yale called the antibody paradox that was written a few few years ago talking about the uh the challenges with patenting antibodies in general in particular the fact because you can't write patents that factor in the expressed variability of all the proteins in the body and it actually it perfectly speaks to the some of the dialogue earlier there's you, you can patent a genetic sequence. This is a discrete math now for protein. But you can't clearly write patents that uh, factor in the variability of every single knowable and unknowable epigenetic factor, DNA sequence, and so on and so forth. It's there's just too many unknowns, and you can you can have some wiggle room. But patent law is has hit up a hit a wall there, and they've been struggling to reconcile this for a long time. And the more they talk about it, the more clear it is that there's a lot of things with respect to genetics that we don't know yet. So this it is a it is a huge quandary. Uh, and I just found it fascinating that the only reason why, Several people, myself included, have stumbled into this is because uh, the patent, this issue really boiled up about 12 years ago with a uh, Centacore versus Genentech uh, lawsuit 
where Brett Weinstein's dad was the arbitrator for it. Uh, Les Weinstein. Ah, they always come through, bro. <laughs> Les Weinstein, as a matter of fact, uh, was the first patent attorney uh, hired by the antitrust division of the United States Department of Justice in 1960. He was hired in 1961. Like Brett, I'm assuming you mean Brett Les Senior. Weinstein, Brett's dad. Yeah. Yeah, he's the top arbitrator. He's handling the Uber case right now. Um, he, uh, in fact, I think it was even involved in the uh, the resolution of the thalidomide scandal, which formed the uh, basis of much of how the United States Food and Drug Administration works. If you want to know how Eric Weinstein probably got all his great ideas to help Peter Thiel and Brett and Eric Weinstein, excuse me, become a, worth $100 million, it's probably because he has a pipeline to more arbitration and lawsuits and patent laws than most people in the world right now. Um, and why if you, am I not surprised, bro? Well, you know, you know, it's, there's that, you know, it's like, well, why, why was the dark horse podcast used to break all this stuff out? You know, some, you know, everyday instructor from evergreen state. I mean, how did this happen? Yeah, Look, man, they, they have zero. It's, it's the patent issue in particular here, though. It's uh, it 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 just it's a it's ex it's really explosive, and it's not just the money behind it. Although there's, as John said, hundreds of billions, maybe way more. It factors in what technologies are being used. It factors in uh, as far as potentially new, uh, you know, antibody therapies go. Um, it factors in. Uh, real, uh, how do you say, exposing what's been known and what still isn't known about the whole field of immunology. Uh, so it's really fascinating. And uh, it's so there's multiple layers to this. And I think you're on the right track. It's definitely causing a lot of unethical behavior. Uh, but it's even big. It's, it's even, you know, sometimes the money is the least of it. You know, I mean, there's psychopaths willing to sign over the entire population of the country for data harvesting. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, the money is like the least of the issue. It's like if everyone could pay a hundred grand to never get vaccinated again, they'd say no. <laughs> it's because that's almost it's almost beyond money. But anyways, uh, I would love to have another conversation about this someday. Yeah, sure. it's I, been too I long really since I've seen out. you, bro. So. Um, yeah yeah man and thank you for the time good to hear from you nick uh good to meet you john and uh thank you guys keep up the great work guys yep thank you mark okay um, mark i agree 100 percent. so the gila thing that george is talking about i understand i get it because if you have that genome and you're doing all that work with all that money and all the systems and you already learned some things that gave you an unfair advantage you don't want to provide that information to anybody you you're holding it back because it gives you an unfair advantage either national security wise or industry wise in the debt system where we're trading toilet paper and i I've seen your children behind you. I'm a father. I understand this ethical thing with our children and our grandchildren and generations will, will never know. 
the part about being a father or mother, any parent, this part here, we want it to be better for our children, our grandchildren. We want them to have more than we ever had. We don't want them to be sick. No, I've been in an emergency room, seeing a niece of mine, 18 months, die, okay, with my sister-in-law and brother-in-law there. It's terrible, okay? It is terrible. And I never want to see that again. So I agree with all the things you said, Kevin. We aren't doing right. Whatever we can do in the spirit of science, whether it's blockchain and honesty, is the better way to go because then we all learn together and we grow together and then we all benefit together unlike the pyramid with the dollar bill that is it's human made it's it's you know it's it's human made junk all right there's no stories of the dollar bill on the stones and the scrolls in the bible whatever religion they're not there in the beginning I agree 100%. And so the thing with George and Hila, I, I agree. I see what's there. There is not transparency in science, which um, it's like, what if I told you all the components of an atom and I left out electron? It's just, come on, it's the same crap again. Just another flavor of it, and it's sickening. Um, well, it's sickening but this shit, and I never took a vaccine, nearly killed me. And, um, you know, you're a father of a kid. How, how will you feel? I wasn't, you know, I'm dead. I'm not here for my daughter. You know, you're dead. You're not there for your kids. And um, when it touches close to home like that, then, then people start getting really angry. Uh, what the hell is this? You know, and start looking and questioning everything, which is what they need to do, uh, because things are out of balance. So I agree, there's something wrong there. Yeah. Well, the problem is with I don't, I don't know if we've already stepped over the event horizon, and the technology is just going to change so rapidly now that you know what what trades are going to be. Oh, professional trades are going to be left open. C computer coding's just suddenly taken a massive hit, right? Because <laughs> you can. Um, so I'm suddenly an expert programmer. <laughs> I was never that before. Right? But you can. You can <laughs> there tell. you go. <laughs> I asked ChatGPT. I asked ChatGPT. Okay, I asked it what human language do you speak. It lists them all. I asked ChatGPT what computer languages you speak. It lists them all. Yeah. I know what kind of pain I went through learning basic or SQL or C, C++. You know, it was learned. It was machine learned. It was machine learned into me and whatever fractals are in my head that we can't, we don't understand. It It's a major concern right now. Okay. And I, I so while I'm here running my mouth, 
I do typically listen a lot and I spend time till five in the morning. I'm here in Florida Eastern time. I spend many nights to five in the morning listening, listening to what people say and reading the papers and just absorbing them and then sitting back and reading between the lines, trying to make sense of what is happening. I hear one person saying there are six AIs in play right now. Yeah, I tried to Google one, but it's shit. <laughs> it's, it's, it's even worse than uh, ChatGPT for hallucinating. Uh, um, so the so the curve, the technology curve, we're shooting exponential right now. We're yeah. shooting exponential. So the curriculums, I'm 55. So the curriculums that we went through that we were allowed to roll with the punches and go from you know, the rotary phone to the brick cell phone to, you know, the quad core Snapdragon phone and all these things. Okay. Now, okay. We're not with it. What's going that way, totally vertical towards the singularity of man and machine is these programs with unlimited funding in this system that gave it to them that's not on the balance sheet that's not transparent and what else is there um and what other technologies are there and how were they hidden from us I t, -Town, t towns and browns stuff has been on the patent book since 1954 and Kevin doesn't know T Towns and Brown, so we won't go oh, there. That okay. we need to we need to put the bookmark in. But that's that's those are some things I'd like to talk with you about. Or being being sure. a southern a southern gentleman with probably some knowledge about things that have happened in Huntsville, Alabama, and places like that. Yeah, uh, the kinds of people there. Well, I was going to say Colonel Corso. Sure. Handing the transistor to Bell Labs, and they jump from vacuum tube. Yeah. to transistor without yeah. any papers, without any, because this is a time when we didn't have internet and social media. They jump from the vacuum tubes to the transistor. 250 year jump. No publications, no patents, no convention talks, no posters, no nothing. The other piece right there, and that's all you gotta see, the integrated circuit given to Texas Instrument and the Japanese. Mm -hmm. Same exact story. And I know that I go and I say, you've got digital code. You've got the historical references, the stone, the scripture, and the others. And then you got CIA people who can remote view and other things mm. with, with all of the drug-induced stuff. So you ask yourself, is there a fight over our DNA code going on? How long has it been going on? And I now look at the math and physics and thermodynamics of the codes and what a protein is as a machine versus the machines that we make, which a lot of them are metal, metallic, nanometallic, or... Uh, buckyball nanotubes or optical all you know inorganic organic all of those things i so i i, I look at the different perspectives 
and, and I come to these conclusions based on logic to have the intellectual conversation because um, you, we ask ourselves now the question of how much carbon do I consume? How much energy do I consume? How much air do I breathe? Uh, what is the sewage cost of me being? You know, these things that we're now hearing or climate change, all the things out of the out of the government structures and these other institutions like World or Organization and other things. But those things we weren't asking ourselves back there in 1950. They weren't on the radar, and it wasn't like a huge, giant thing. Now, the population is way up, the technology is way up, and, um, well, we saw what the other wars were like. We saw the onset of cyber and cyber war. We're seeing the onset of bio and the bio war at new levels, and this isn't the Mingala and Vietnam stuff. This is here we are now with yeah, supercomputer clusters just, just and stuff. It becomes just, hyper um, difficult yes. to uh, extract yeah. out what if what what agents they can release, and you know if and again if you can induce disease ten years down the line after you've seeded the environment in the in this fashion, then that that becomes a very powerful um tool or weapon um to be wielding and, and but i debank you right now what are you gonna do now kevin yeah, so i i this is what this is what i i, I think we're at i don't think you're gonna see so so-called like wet, wet operations like they used to do they just know that they can contain you um informatically right because you know in, informatics is this I, I hate the term but um, it does sort of underlie a lot of current scientific thinking and domains, right? Everything is just information in one form or another, being converted into one form or another. And we can abstract and model that out. And um, maybe, maybe that's the case. But um, there's, um, we have to, like, some sort of constitution or anything that re-established the sovereignty of human beings and their um their right not to be um predated on by um corporations this is it's an old argument in fact and um i'm not i'm not sure all i can all i can think of is just you, you sort of band together and hope that you can survive the the tides and the the storms at sea and get through to the other side of what it what it is that they're pulling off right now and if you don't think that they're pulling something massive off then you're stupid you're naive and you're not you haven't experienced enough of life or the <laughs> seen in, seen how the sausage is made Speaking of sausage, seventy-two oh, you What? <laughs> just oh, oh, yeah. Well, you're. Hey, no. Uh, I was going to say seventy-two years later today, 
the Lax family just got a settlement for the use of Henrietta's cells um, beginning in the 1950s. They were just in the news today. They got their settlement finally. Yeah. How much did they worth? I didn't see numbers. I looked at a few sources and I didn't see numbers. And I'm sure that that was, uh, I mean, think, just think of the amount of the number of experiments, the number of orders from the ATCC or wherever you ordered your, your stuff from. Um, but, uh, anyway, by the way, uh, Johanna would really enjoy, uh, talking, uh, with John and I, and whoever else wants to jump in on the UAP topic. And we're talking about a very terrestrial side of it, the very human history side of it. Um, so that, that could be a fun conversation topic. Sometime. Yeah, I, can... I hope she had when... good lawyers because the future earnings seem to be, uh, looking pretty bright. Um, what for UAPs? For for the Gila cell line, I was just gonna say I I appreciate the work that George does because he gets up off his ass and goes to these places, not just in this subject, and talks to the people. And the problem people are afraid a lot, especially the older people that know a lot of detail. They're not engaged in social media. You know, you got 80 and 90 year olds are not here with us. that have a lot of information. George goes there and he talks to people and listens and lets them tell the story. Uh, and, and also gets where, you know, the Duke matches. That was a brilliant idea. So he goes there and gets out information from them. And, you know, I'm not a journalist. I, I am not. So, I am appreciative because I sit back and I see him doing these things. I can't go there and do it. Um, and also I'm not good at it. He's good at what he does. So when he, when he goes over there and he starts saying these things about Gila and the others and starts uncovering these things and starts getting the feedback from these other people, that's important to me. Okay, it's important to me, um, right, wrong, or indifferent. It is important to all of us. So, I I appreciate you know all the work, whether it comes from the scientific perspective or the journalist expert. And um, unlike mainstream media, he actually goes there and talks to people. And you know, um, I think that's very important for what's going on now because because of the deplatforming people that tried to come out in social media the debanking the threats okay i myself had my identity i went to the fbi they didn't know my identity <laughs> come on man that's like uh you know monday night football with Keyshawn johnson's come on man you know I, i'm at the fbi they don't know my identity. Oh, really? You don't know my identity? And anyway, it's just, I appreciate it. The importance of it. We, we actually need more people doing it. That is almost, I'd say for me, it's just, to me, it's as important as the scientist doing diligence in the laboratory looking at whether they're looking at atoms or particles 
or biology or some other thing, that piece is important because I can't, we had to work together in the team thing. I can't go and do that shit. I don't have the time to, in order to survive. I'm trying to survive in this system that we're all, you know, I'm trying to get out of that system so that when it implodes from the chaos, I can survive or the nukes or whatever you want to call, but it's important. So, you know, for what that's worth. It's a good point to wrap up on. Um, we've been three and a half hours, so um, fair, fair stream there for people to work through. Um, Nick, any last words? No, I think we've said them all. Okay. okay. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to meet you. Nick, always a pleasure. Um, I will no doubt um see you outside of stream of course um take care guys and I'll... pleasure to speak with all you guys including the ones that left and anytime uh, yeah, they, they had to drop off but um yeah have a good day or evening thanks you guys. kevin yep all right bye bye thanks john ciao all right um let's just check if anyone sent no, today. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. And uh, yesterday, Mark and Amy and Bob. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I haven't had chance really to um, do the normal, the normal shtick. So uh, I am out of here. Take care, guys. I will see you. In the next one, I'm hope I'm see if I can line up the uh, subject matter expert those uh, magnetic particles. Um, catch you guys later. God bless. Bro, you don't know how angry I am. You do. I'm like I was just leaving for fucking work. You do not understand how fucking pissed off. After reading that little line, I will be arrested for not taking a fucking vaccine. Fuck these cappers! I will fucking kill each fucking capper. I swear. <laughs> this is not a fucking joke anymore. This is fucking dead serious. I am fucking dead serious. These people don't know who the fuck they actually playing. Fuck these cappers. No fucking vaccine or MRA or ever throws you my fucking blood, blood. Never. I will fucking die. Fighting for my fucking bees and my fucking forefathers and my fucking lineage. Fuck these motherfuckers. All that five. This guy. Send check forty-five thousand. Let up! 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 Let up!